to go back a sec first shit's been getting fucking weird on your island <laughs> over the last like 20 issues x-men x-men in the 21st century evil mutants led by magneto aim to destroy the world only hope is x-men Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast, where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of Homo Superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today is Calden Khalil, RPG developer, tabletop game writer. You may have seen his work for various big companies. Pretty recently, he did a lot of work on the Sabbat book for the fifth edition of Vampire the Masquerade. You were on the Dune RPG, is my recollection, the newer one. Yes, that's correct. Caldoon, how are you today? He told me you could just say Caldoon, but I was trying. I'm like, tr- I was trying to make the sound. <laughs> yeah, okay, properly. yes. I mean, you know, it's, I'm doing great. Yeah, my, my, my <laughs> I can, uh, you know, my parents do the the whole Arabic thing of Khaldun uh, Khlil and all that. But uh, just, you know, just between us here in America, I, I do Caldoon. I'm sure, I'm yeah, I just. I had a Palestinian RA in college who taught me how to like actually say her name because her name was Adria, but it was Khadria. Mm. There's like a, a little that we don't even, you don't write it in English, but I was That's like, right. okay, I'll figure it out. I like to get people's names correctly, but we'll go with Khaldun for now um, because listen, my laryngitis from last week is much better, but I wouldn't say that I'm in a place of... <laughs> very easily at the moment still <laughs> yeah we don't want to re- we don't want to relapse i don't want to get i don't want the cerebro followers to come for me yeah we first talked about doing this a very long time ago uh, and i'm excited to do it now i think it was good that we waited i mean at the time there was a story ongoing that we really wanted to see how it would shake out first we are here today to talk about the shadow king best known as amal farouk the arch nemesis of several characters in the X-Men franchise in order, they are Charles Xavier, Karma, Storm, and Betsy Braddock. He refocuses occasionally, particularly once Claremont kind of lost interest in Xavier, his attentions went elsewhere. The Shadow King is one of the most dangerous evil telepaths ever introduced in the X-Men franchise. As initially presented in Uncanny X-Men 117, he is the first evil mutant that Xavier ever encountered. Their battle on the astral plane led to Farouk's apparent death. It will later turn out that he survived as an astral entity. Later stories by Claremont render it much more ambiguous as to whether Farouk is the Shadow King or whether Amal Farouk was just another host or body of the Shadow King. The implication starts to become much more strongly that it's the latter, but it's a retcon. Vita Ayala more recently told an incredible story through their run on New Mutants in which that is underlined. The distinctions between Farouk and the Shadow King are emphasized, but also teased out in a lot of interesting ways there's more overlap than you might think there's accountability taken it's a really interesting story i think it's the strongest story ayala did in their run on new mutants which overall i really liked and it's certainly i think the most human and fully formed this character has ever been the Shadow King is a particular obsession of Claremont's. Whenever Claremont comes back to the franchise, the Shadow King pops back up. 
for a very long time, Claremont was developing the Shadow King as sort of the big bad of the entire X-Men franchise. This was supposed to culminate with him killing Charles Xavier in Uncanny X-Men 300, but Claremont's final issue on Uncanny X-Men in that first 16-year run is 279. The story was taken out of his hands and given to Fabian Niciesa with plot direction from editor Bob Harris. That was sort of the big final straw that led to Claremont's departure from the franchise. And in the time since, The Shadow King has never quite stuck. I think later writers didn't quite get what Claremont was going for, and he never got his big climactic moment with Charles, so the arc doesn't really complete. I think in part it's also that he is the strongest example in concert of what I would say are the two aspects of Claremont's storytelling and thematic interests that have aged really badly in the time since. The first one being his obsession with the mysterious East and the Orient and sort of Orientalism as a concept and Eastern mysticism. And then also his frequent use of obesity as a signifier for moral repugnance, which is not specific to Claremont. It's a trope that's common in fantasy literature in particular, but is something that becomes more and more obvious once you notice that it's something he does in his work. So Amal Farouk, as an obese Arab man who is the fundamental source of all evil in the universe by the point of the late 80s, to exist as as the big, big, big bad, it's a little awkward. And so I think that in the 90s, there was an attempt. I mean, you only really see him in the 90s depicted as like an astral plane demon who doesn't look human at all, which I think was probably a smart choice. But I think that what Ayala and Rod Race did was to reiterate the visual of Farouk and the mystical Egypt trappings of Farouk and then make them something human and real and not stereotypical. That, to me, was one of the most impressive things about that story. Visually, Amal Farouk is based on King Farouk I of Egypt and the Sudan, who reigned from the mid-30s to the early 50s. He just is visually that guy. From the fez to the suit, there are pictures of King Farouk in his later life that look a lot like Amal Farouk. Yeah, it's a spitting image. Like, I mean, they, they might have just taken a photograph, really. I think it's just someone used a reference photo and said, this guy's cool, use him, you know? The fez just keeps getting smaller is the only thing. It does, well, because he keeps getting bigger, right? I'm excited to talk about this character because he's so vague and cosmic and kind of weird. We can just sort of theorize and kind of like loosely jump from story to story because he doesn't have that many stories. But we can also use him as a focus for discussion of the way Middle Eastern and North African people are depicted in superhero comics, of the way fat people are depicted in superhero comics, and the role he plays in Claremont's broader X-Men universe. So 
I'm excited to unpack all of this with you. Outside of his work as a tabletop developer, Khaldun is a writer on the Middle East. You are a Palestinian. Yes, yeah, I was born in Algeria. My mother is Palestinian. My father is uh, Algerian. Uh, gotcha. I identify as a you know, Palestinian and an Algerian. Well, Algeria is right in the region that we're talking about. So that's Correct. perfect that you've got yeah. both of those things. Oh, yeah, no, and I have, you know, I have my degrees. Yeah, there's like design, big... You know framed degrees on the wall so i would love before we jump into the shadow king to talk about your history with the x-men your origin story with this franchise and what it means to you well i think you'll be happy to know that really my origins as far as the x-men are concerned uh when i personally like my brother was a huge comic book nerd and he was 10 years older than me so i really inherited all of his comics like he had all these like spider-man like sinister he had the original one of the sinister six and all this other stuff um, that, you know, I kind of demolished by reading over and over again. <laughs> uh, you know, sorry about that. Uh, and uh, but personally, when I started collecting it was around X Factor, uh, the, like the original run of X Factor. I really, um, you know, so I'm sure that, you know, that's that your uh, listeners will happy to hear that I'm very you know deeply tied and connected to what happened to um, Candy Southern. Ah, well, essential. <laughs> uh you know when i saw um you know orphan maker return and uh you know <laughs> i was like really excited i was like oh shoot it's orphan maker oh my god and i was like i'm probably like one of three people who right super excited to see that character's like return and like development as a character so yeah so x factor and that whole uh run that would become um uh, you know, uh, when an archangel was, you know, one of my favorite characters when he uh, went through the, you know, transformation as one of the horsemen of the apocalypse. Mm -hmm. And of course, Inferno is like deep in my my DNA. Uh, so I, uh, you know, that that's kind of what uh, got me into X-Men. I had read when I was younger, I, I read a, a, a New Mutants title uh, that kind of all took place in Legion's head. Yeah. It's very young. Uh, and that was like a very problematic issue for you, me as a young reader. Well, it is. It does feature the Palestinian terrorist character, right. Jamal. Exactly. Right. It was interesting to see myself like portrayed in a comic, but uh, the portrayal was like pretty problematic. I uh, mean, you know, it's, <laughs> I, I'd be interested in your take on it because Legion and the Shadow King also become tied, yeah. obviously, as the story goes on. And I think that that's meant to refer back to the Israeli Arab tension that's at the center of legion's origin right sure. but i reread that recently for this show and i was actually struck i mean i've talked to chris claremont personally about zionism and i know that he's not a fan so the <laughs> <laughs> oh, good to know good to know right. just fyi if yeah. anybody's listening and is curious the reason he didn't like krakoa when he first heard about it was that he doesn't like minority groups isolating themselves mm. the x-men in his view was always about integrating and and not necessarily assimilating but you know living together in peace and harmony and yada 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 so when he and i were arguing about that i was like well what do you think about israel he's like i've been mad about that since they did it and i'm like well okay fair play <laughs> i mean you know and i because i think that the krakoa israel comparisons are kind of specious right krakoa is not an ethno state first of all which is a pretty big distinction even if allegorically people might want to call it that it's just simply not true because mutants can be of any race or ethnicity but then also no one's been displaced so i think right. it's good that the x-men comics on krakoa are not using krakoa to comment directly 
on Israel-Palestine because it's not an analogous situation. You would end up with something like Fables, where Bill Willingham sets up a really specious Israel allegory with the... Yeah, I'm still mad about that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, and then everybody was like, oh, he's right wing. It was like, yeah, shocker, bitch. Remember the witch that powers her magic with an abortion clinic she runs because it counts as baby murder? This is like a really right wing book, but whatever. I digress. It's not a Fables podcast. Wolf Among Us is still fun, but... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was kind of shocking to me when I was first reading Fables. I was reading, like, the trade paperbacks, like, year... uh, He was very open about it in interviews. They'd be like, well, what's Fables about? He goes, Israel. And I'm like, oh, God. It's especially annoying because he's, like, not even Jewish. It was just, like, a weird Christian Zionist book, but, you know... Well, they're the, you know, they're the craziest, so... Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, you know, with other Jewish people, I can at least debate. I mean, you're son is Jewish because your ex-wife was Jewish. Yes. So like, obviously there's a variety of opinions, especially generationally. By the rules. Yeah, but fuck the rules because by the rules I wasn't and I think that's bullshit. Oh, sorry. I've crossed all my T's and dotted all my I's or, you know, I guess drawn a swishy thing around all my Aleph's or whatever. Uh, (laughs) But, uh, you know, I, I did all the, I did all the paperwork, let's say, but uh, it's still annoying. And I'm like, we can do DNA tests now. It doesn't have to be like, I get that in the desert, you could only be confident that someone is someone's child if they come out of her body. Right. But like we have methods now we have the technology that would open up a whole other can of worms. They obviously do not want to open up. So, well, right. So anyway, all that. <laughs> yeah, once you start DNA testing people, then you, you might not get, well, them. and also DNA tests for Ashkenazi Jews in particular are useless. They're just yeah. like, so guess what? You're Ashkenazi Jewish. You're related to every other Ashkenazi Jewish person. Ooh, we found you a cousin. It's like, no, you didn't. Their great-great-great-grandfather was also from Budapest and is also a Middle Eastern European hybrid situation from that region of Europe. That's literally all that this says, but, you know, whatever. Right. To bring it back around to old Chris Claremont, who is also Jewish through his mother, but was raised Catholic, I believe. Certainly Christian of some denomination. I mean, his name is Chris, notably, which is, like, about the least Jewish name you can have. But... (laughs) We talked about Israel just in passing once, and he's just not really into that kind of separatism. So knowing that and then rereading the story, I was actually struck by how sympathetically Jamail is portrayed and how Jamail, by becoming part of Legion, brings him a peace that he didn't have. Like, if you think about Claremont's belief that, like, human and mutant must live in harmony, right? Like, the idea that the solution to some of Legion's problems is for him as an Israeli psychotic to integrate his mind with a really devoted Palestinian is kind of interesting. But there are certainly stereotypes about the character that are not ideal. I just feel like it's the most sympathetically I've seen a Muslim terrorist or freedom fighter, whatever you want to call it, portrayed maybe ever in a superhero comic and certainly in the 80s. So it's just one of those weird things where I'm never certain 100% how I feel about it. And at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter how I feel about it. But I imagine it was something that weighed on you a little bit as a kid, right? Well, right. I mean, in some ways, you know, it's kind of the double-edged sword. It was nice to have like some kind of representation on, on some level. I'm not really quite sure if, um, like, it's been a while since I read that comic. I actually still have it around here someplace, but I'm not actually quite sure if he's actually directly identified as a Palestinian. I I think he's he's kind of... He kills David's stepfather in a bombing in Israel. It's pretty... Right. 
Yeah, but I think he's kind of I think that as... the word may not be used, right. but that it's meant to be understood. Of course, right. Well, that, that's part of the issue. That was part of the issue with me is that it was clearly meant to be, you know, a Palestinian, but the word Palestine, Palestinian was basically, you know, kind of excised from all. I think it's very possible that editorial or standards and practices said you can't use that because yeah. I'm thinking back to the Peter David Sabra stuff, and I think they just say Arabs. They like, do. I don't yes. think they say Palestinian because the they term never Palestinian said. was at the time controversial to begin with, right? So. Oh, yes, it was. Yeah. I, I, I mean, it still is to some extent if you're like, you know, a hardline Zionist, but you get what I'm saying. Oh, yeah. No, de definitely. I mean, I, I we just had like a, an election cycle where there was like an argument sure about, <laughs> about the word Palestinian. Yeah. Um, uh, amongst like the front runners right i can't believe that he's back i mean i can bb i mean it's <laughs> oh just yes. like, yeah no, i no, really yeah that's a whole other conversation but yeah We're, and I, this I'm is not... not this is not a netanyahu podcast <laughs> okay that's, that's so. okay <laughs> all right that's part of the problem in in my estimation is that the character is definitely meant to be Palestinian, but they can't use the word. Right, which limits his subjectivity because right. he would certainly identify that way himself. That's a really sure, good point. For sure. And it's part of like kind of the it's kind of the bait and switch of the story. Like they kind of use the trope of the Arab terrorist. So that it's, you know, so that you get sucked in to uh, believing. Well, he's the, the bad reader guy. is assumed to be right. someone who will think oh no, an Arab terrorist. And then exactly. the twist is that actually he's a pretty sympathetic character. That's also the twist in the Sabra story. There's this Arab boy who dies and it's like, oh, Sabra feels guilt. But like, it's assuming that you're going to be on her side at the beginning of the story. It's an assumed white reader. Well, or at least an assumed non-Arab reader. Because I think Sabra is potentially a Mizrahi character, but it's never been 100% clear. And this is not a Sabra episode either. <laughs> Yeah, I I don't have a lot to say about Sabra. Yeah, uh, frankly, I don't either. Besides, like, let Spencer Ackerman write the miniseries because <laughs> he'd freak that. But I would not want to write Sabra. That's one where I I feel like leave that to a real sociopolitical right foreign policy expert kind of person, which I am not. So you know, with that assumption. There's an othering that you would experience if you're reading it and you're going like, but he's like me. Why is the story assuming that I wouldn't trust him or like, you know? Right. Yeah. Why is the like John Wayne giant haired character like the trustworthy one uh, and uh, right the kind of like uh, Arab terrorist guy uh, dressed in white assumed to be the bad guy? I mean, part of it also to me is it kind of deals with this um, very regular trope which is that the other kind of somehow heals, completes, or guides the, like, white protagonist. Mm-hmm. Legend of Bagger Vance kind of thing. Yeah, like I, like I said, he becomes part of Legion, which right. is an appropriation also. And Claremont is no stranger to that critique. I mean, the idea that Tom Corsi and Sharon Friedlander become Native American or that Betsy Braddock becomes Asian as part right. of a spiritual journey that they are on makes whiteness a default and makes other racial experiences something that you can absorb into yourself, which is a white fantasy that is pretty commonplace. That's eat, pray, love, right? Like that's like all that stuff. It's like I'm going to, especially with the East, especially with the Orient, with the Middle East, with North Africa, this idea that like you can go to Asia or North Africa and learn this, you can become Iron Fist. You can become Doctor Strange. You can become 
that and bring order to the chaos of the mysteries of the East with your like Western rational mind, right? Is like the trope. Right. What I like about Legion is that he's not rational and Jamail is the one that's rational. But, but he's also a fanatic. I mean, Jamail is. He's violent. Right. I think he, I think he, does he kill Legion's mother? I think? Stepfather. 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 Okay. Yeah. And, and that directly leads to him being killed and absorbed. And absorbed into the Legion, right? Yeah. So, you know, it's uh, not perfect. And I would say whenever I get to the Legion episode, reread that story and write in with your thoughts because I would love a Palestinian perspective on that character with like a refreshed, you've just read it recently, whenever I get to that episode. Yeah, I mean, I'm a big fan of like the TV, as, as I've said, the TV series Legion. And like, I even like what they like did with Farouk there. I thought- it Yeah, was I never watched it. So there's a question about it and we'll get there in the Q&A. That actor's hot. The what? The actor's hot. Yes. Well, yes, of course. <laughs> I mean, that's definitely true. Have you seen, uh, he's in several movies that I like. There's a, oh man, I, I forget what it's called. Anyway, it's on Netflix. It's very good. It's a horror movie about like uh, Christian fanatics on an island. It's, uh, it's oh, pretty Oh, well, that's fun. That sounds good to me. That he's uh, the, the star of. And I think it's Michael Flanagan, actually, who's the director of that. But yeah, in any case. Uh, I first saw him, he was in... Um... I recognized his name from The Stoning of Soraya M, the Shari Agdashli movie, which was like a very controversial movie back when it came out. That was like, that came out when I was in college. And I think, I can't think of what else I had seen him in, but I recognized that. I think, I mean, I think he was on 24 because every Middle Eastern actor was on 24. So was Shari Agdashli. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, not always in a, in a super great role. But I will have to look up I have to look that up. I saw actually, I was looking up the Legion show and like clicking through and stuff. And he just started on that show, The Serpent Queen about Catherine de' Medici, which oh, I haven't watched, oh. but everybody says is a lot of fun. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. So my 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 knowledge of the Legion character is mostly about like um, current his, his, his show in the current run of the X-Men. Like in the old run, like I said, the kind of that New Mutants kind of like soured me on the character. Yeah, fair. Yeah, so I, I so I mostly know him from the Legion, mostly from the TV show, the the new run, and I guess right at the end of the Claremont run, there was kind of this Legion Shadow King kind of like crossover when they were like doing the reboot. Yeah, there's a Legion Shadow King Gestalt at the heart yeah. of the Muir Island saga before Claremont gets the book taken away and so right, it doesn't yeah. quite resolve in a satisfying way and we'll get there when we get there in the story when did you first encounter the shadow king uh well yeah i, I encountered him basically when claremont left so the mural that story family. with legion yeah yeah i'd known that xavier had been in a wheelchair but most of my experience with xavier was him walking around so uh when the shadow king basically like broke his back again yeah, that's true because yeah, yeah, he had been walking again for a very long time yeah. by that point. Yeah, by that point he was like I think I I had known him walking longer than I'd known him in the wheelchair at that point. So that was the compromise essentially was that instead of killing him to cripple him again because that would be devastating for Charles as a character specifically who has always resented his wheelchair it made sense. I just, you know, I'm of two minds about the Muir Island saga because on the one hand, I would have loved to see Claremont's vision carried through to issue 300. And I think that killing Xavier before the 90s changeover would have been a much more interesting story than the stories that we actually got in the 90s for the most part, with a few exceptions. 
That said, the Muir Island saga drags real bad. Yeah. It ends abruptly in 279 when Claremont gets pulled off the book. And the idea that it was going to go on for 21 more issues is kind of unfathomable to me. Like, I, I just, that's almost two years of comics. I guess fewer in the summer because they would have double shipped. But, like, that's crazy. <laughs> like, I, I just can't, I can't imagine that the pacing of that would have been satisfying. So... I want to see the alternate universe omnibus where I can read those issues, but I also do understand where editorial was coming from when they were like, you got to wrap this up. And he was like, no. And they were like, well, then we're going to hire someone else to wrap it up. I don't agree with Harris's choices regarding Claremont otherwise, but I do get the criticisms that editorial had specifically of the Shadow King plot being confusing, the Legion plot being confusing, the Muir Island saga just dragging on and on and on and on. It's just unfortunately the 16-year Claremont run ending with a bit of a thud because it gets cut off at the knees. Yeah, it was a bit it was a bit muddy. Like I'm uh I'd always been kind of a a, a Polaris fan. I always like Polaris, but yeah, not a great story for her. Well, right, I have, I, I'm, I'm like still confused about what exactly was going on, and they wrapped it up in this kind of convoluted way. It involved Zaladane, so we will get oh. there when we, uh, <laughs> when we get there in the chronology. <laughs> After that, I mean, he's not really around much. He has a couple stories in the '90s, the Cywar storyline where he fights Betsy. He has a couple storylines involving Storm's tribe in Kenya. Then really he's trapped in Betsy's head for a long time. Well, it's only a couple years actually when you think about it. It felt like a long time because I was a child. But it's not until Claremont comes back and Betsy is killed off in Extreme X-Men that the Shadow King comes back, factors into a lot of what Claremont was doing in that period in New Excalibur. And then, quite honestly, apart from Chris whipping him back out of the toy box whenever he comes back as much as he can, he hasn't been used very much. Chris Yost does another story about Storm's tribe. Charles Soule does that Astonishing X-Men story with Betsy and the resurrection of Xavier after Avengers vs. X-Men. And then Ayala does what I think is really the definitive take on the character going forward. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, I I have that run. I don't know that he can ever be used as a stock villain again. After I mean, you, anything can be done, obviously, but they put in so much work with a really strong B-plot that opens their run and continues all the way through most of it that character has a new lease on life. And I'm interested to see how he gets used in the future, but it also makes sense that Ayala sort of helpfully shovels him off the page until such time as someone has a story to tell with him. What made you want to talk about him with me? Because he was a character that you suggested as a potential point of discussion. Well, I mean, quite honestly, they're Besides not... the obvious, I mean, like, that's like a leading question. But, like, <laughs> let's talk about the Middle East. You know, I get that, but... Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's mostly it. I mean, mostly there are just not a lot of, um, you know, characters with that kind of background in comics. And especially not one from that far back in the day who's just not... I mean, he was a caricature for sure, but uh, he had enough interesting about him that you know he is um 
endured. And he's not like running around in a turban with a scimitar, like oh, yeah. doing you mean like Aladdin stuff. Right. Yeah. Like, you know <laughs> what I mean? It's not that at least right. like he's based on a 20th century person. <laughs> well, right. Yeah. He's based on this kind of like, you know, the bizarre, the souk, the like, you know, mm-hmm. the, you know the like, you know, um, back alley merchant in a way. But he's very chic. Like he wears that nice white suit. He's got the fez always like perfectly arranged. He's got those dark glasses. He looks more like the kingpin right. than he does like a character you would expect in like an Arab peril story. He's more exactly. of a businessman. It's interesting to me because so many of Claremont's Eastern characters are very old timey. His, I mean, a critique of Claremont's Japan is that it's very feudal in a lot of ways. Yeah. Like the way that the Yakuza houses work, the way that everyone's a samurai. Like Everybody gets a kimono. Right. Like Mariko Yoshida probably would not be walking around in a kimono like that day to day while like, you know, doing her taxes, but she does. <laughs> so, and as it goes on, that changes somewhat. Like you start to see her once she takes over the family. You start to see her in like business suits and stuff. But I do think that that's a critique that is often reasonably leveled at Western comics treatments of Asia in general, and certainly also the Middle East with characters like Arabian Night. And Farouk was never really like that. He's positioned as an equal to Xavier in intellect and in power, and also in modernity. It's what the 50s, 60s by that point, because Storm is like 10. a little kid. Yeah. yeah. He seems like a contemporary person. Now, it will turn out that he is much, much, much older than he appears, but that's something that has again progressively retconned onto the character. And of course, eventually it turns out that he's not really Arab at all, that Amal Farouk is, but that the Shadow King is a cosmic entity like the Phoenix that's been around since the dawn of time. As Claremont develops his cosmology, the racialization of the character gets downplayed. I think that a really strong symbol of that is that when the Shadow King's plans come to fruition in the Muir Island saga, it's in the host body of Agent Rice, who is a white man and an American. And I think that that is a deliberate move. But there's still a lot of just baggage with this guy. And, and in the astral plane, he still looks like Amal Farouk. So there's always that idea of the scary Egyptian gangster lurking somewhere. Yeah, no, I mean, for me... Like I said, he has a kind of, he's what I would say is kind of one of the first characters I saw on the page who has kind of had a modern Arab sensibility and wasn't just like, you know, the oil shake mm-hmm. or whatever, like, you know, which seem, which, you know, which many DC comics seem obsessed with. They, they even. They're always going to crack <laughs> yeah. the fictional DC. Right. OPEC nation. Exactly. The fictional DC, like Saudi Arabia slash Qatar slash, you know, who knows where. So, I mean, like I said, he. Who's kind of the first real depiction, or at least what I'd say is a character who's enduring, who's a modern depiction of, you know, uh, an Arab as we know them in, you know, the media today, in the modern media. Um, and obviously the kind of criminal element um, I thought was was interesting. So I thought there was a lot to explore there with, you know, Farouk. And also, uh, as I said, with the, the Legion TV show, I mean, he's also uh, more up front and present in you know modern media and and, um, Mm -hmm. and and literature and and this was you know uh before the uh, ayala run was uh completed 
Um, so now definitely after that, I mean, there's a, there's definitely a, a lot to talk about and um, divorced from um, the geopolitics of the character, like how the character fits in um, just, uh, I don't know if a superhero, but definitely as a mutant right uh, now. Uh, and, it, and it's interesting that we can now talk about the character in that way without having. To- well, the fact that Farouk, like what Ayala does that's really, really smart and strong is because the Shadow King was destroyed by Betsy and Charles in whatever sense. I mean, like the Phoenix, it can always come back, right? But saying, okay, who is Amal Farouk then? Right. If you follow Claremont's implications that Farouk was just another host in a long line of them, then who was this person? Who was Amal Farouk before they merged? And the thing that I thought was really clever, and we'll get into this in more detail uh, later on, is having the Shadow King possess Farouk as a child is very smart because it means that as far as Farouk is concerned, they have always kind of been the same person. Right. He has no real identity without the Shadow King, yeah. Right. So it enables you to use Farouk as the Shadow King while decoupling Farouk as a human being from the true horrendous cosmic gnawing evil of the Shadow King and then unpack that and say, well, who who could he be? And I think that he could be a really interesting character after he does all the therapy that he's doing now, you know? (laughs) It's funny that you mention that he was the first sort of modern Arab character to recur that way, because I'm thinking about it, and, like, there truly are not many. Claremont also creates Jetstream, who is Moroccan as one of the Hellions, but he's not a super major character. And then Monet, who's Algerian, is really one of the biggest ones, but she grew up in Europe and she's Monegasque, speaks French mostly. Her mother died when she was young. She doesn't seem to be close with that side of her family. She definitely identifies culturally as Muslim and as an Arab woman, but it's a little bit at a remove. And so there is a space for Farouk to be a character representing, because we don't have Egyptian characters. We have Storm, who grew up on the streets in Cairo because she was there with her parents when the bombing happened. But she's Kenyan. It's a little bit different from having someone who's actually, like, apart from, again, ancient characters like Apocalypse, it's not something that you really see. So I'm interested to see what a writer does with him next. Like, I'd love to see Saladin Ahmed do something with this. You know, like there are a lot of writers, G. Willow Wilson. There are a lot of people who I think could do something really cool with this because Ayala teed it up now. The burden of making him a real person wouldn't necessarily have to fall on an Arab or Muslim writer. Right. He's already a person. Now what story do you want to tell? Which is always nice. Yeah, I mean, I just say there, there are often these characters, especially when they're written by, you know, a, a, a white writer, which, you know, was what was common back in the day. So you see these characters who are kind of, you know, whether they're Vietnamese or Algerian or whatever, but they really present not so much the culture of, you know, Algeria or Indonesia or Vietnam. They speak the colonial language. Right. Like Karma only ever spoke French and English until exactly. Vida Ayala had her speak Vietnamese in Correct. this yeah. run. That's exactly, that's it. Yeah, that, that you get these characters who will mostly represent the kind of like colonized version of their ethnicity. And the wealthy 
Well, yes. The colonial institutional wealthy people like Monet's mother. They say Algerian royalty, which doesn't make sense because that's not. I think they were thinking (laughs) of Morocco. Yeah. But the thing is, like, the closest thing that you could come to that would be the aristocrats during the colonial period who were native to Algeria but were participating in the colonial government, which is the same situation as Karma's father, who was working with the colonial government. Those characters are fascinating, and I love them both, but there is that that's sort of classed and also westernized in some sense. And so one of the things that I did really like about what Ayala did is that they decided that Amal Farouk was a bazaar merchant's son and was a working class 17th century orphan, you know, like not a person who comes from a class background that was advantageous, not a person who has been removed from the culture. It's clear that he was in Cairo for, you know, hundreds of years, like, and saw Egypt become modern Egypt from the Egypt of the medieval period. So, or the Renaissance, I don't know, I'm not a historian. (laughs) So I just think that there's a lot of, of potential here. And at this point, probably we should just jump in, right? Like start at the sure, yeah, at I the mean. beginning and, and just go. I actually think this is a little unorthodox, but I think maybe because this character is very confusing and has a lot of retcons, maybe we will just pause right now and I'm going to do the character file, which shouldn't be that long because, again, he only has like 80 appearances and they're mostly him like looming over someone's shoulder going like, I'm possessing you, you know. (laughs) But uh, why don't I do that? So, listeners, I will take you through the Shadow King's complete character history from X-Men 117 up through the recent run of New Mutants by Vida Ayala and Rod Race, and also his cameo appearance in Chris Claremont's Gambit series. Then we will come back for more with Khaldun Khalil. We will start at 117 and just do more in-depth discussion of all these stories, and then we will answer questions from listeners like you. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. X-Men, X-Men. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. And now, Miss Candy Southern, and me, your host, with a message from our sponsors. Long time no see, beautiful boys and groovy gals. The summer's just beginning, and I, for one... (laughs) Oh my, that one was a whopper. What's the matter, Candy? Sorry, Connor, old sport. My allergies are just the pits this year. I'm afraid any ad for me is going to sound like it was recorded underwater. Have you tried Astapro over-the-counter nasal spray? It's the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray and starts working in 30 minutes while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray, delivering full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. I've had terrible allergies this year, which is a bummer when you record a podcast for a living, but Astapro has kept me sounding crystal clear. It's got your back and your nose. And thank heavens for that. If you've got allergies like me and Candy, get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. X-Men, X-Men. 
Amal Farouk, usually called the Shadow King, but sometimes rendered as a distinct being separate from that entity, it's complicated, sorry, is a classic X-Men villain whose publication history is deeply complicated by unrealized plots and near-constant retcons. Created by Chris Claremont and John Byrne, Farouk is introduced in flashback as the first evil mutant Charles Xavier ever encountered. Over time, Claremont developed the Shadow King into the overarching big bad of his 16-year run, but was removed from his position as writer before the plans could come to fruition. I am gonna do my best here. Farouk first appears in 1979's X-Men 117 in a flashback to Charles Xavier's younger years. Following his service in the Korean War, Charles is rejected by his lover Dr. Moira Kinross and decides to travel the world to find himself. While touring Cairo, a little girl attempts to pickpocket him, but he's able to stop her telepathically. He consents that the girl, young Aurora Monroe, is a mutant like himself, but before he can investigate further, he's attacked remotely by another psychic. Tracing the source of the telepathic assault, he meets Amal Farouk, the premier crime lord of Cairo, who attempts to convince Charles to join forces. When he refuses, Farouk duels him to the death on the astral plane. While Farouk is more experienced, Charles's raw ability enables him to triumph in the end, destroying Farouk's astral form and leaving his physical body dead when they return to reality. In 1983's New Mutants No. 6, team leader Karma is contacted telepathically by a mysterious voice, which promises to her horror to claim her body and soul forever. Shortly thereafter, she is apparently killed in an explosion. Two years later, in New Mutants 29, the team discovers that the shadowy figure running an illegal mutant fight circuit and slave ring in Los Angeles is actually Karma, now the host of Amal Farouk, who here calls himself the Shadow King. Farouk claims that he became an astral being after Charles killed his physical form, and that he's turned Karma's possession power against her to seize control of her body. As Farouk is a gluttonous hedonist, Karma, who's trapped within her own mind, unable to control herself, has become extremely obese. She flees to Madripoor, where the New Mutants team up with Aurora Monroe, now the X-Men and Storm, but apparently still a subject of interest for Farouk ever since that first encounter when she tried to take Charles Xavier's wallet as a child. Farouk is able to overpower most of the gathered heroes, but Magic and Warlock are able to disrupt Farouk's control of their friends. Inside her own mind, Karma battles Farouk and defeats him, banishing him back to the astral plane. Traumatized and miserable with the new state of her body, she attempts suicide but is convinced to persevere by her friends. An adventure in Asgard causes her to lose all the weight, so don't worry about that. See the Karma episodes for more details on that messy storyline. Four years later, in Uncanny X-Men 253, the Shadow King resurfaces and targets Aurora, recently regressed to childhood by the villain Nanny, and robbed of both her mutant powers and her memories of the X-Men. Little Aurora is aided by two kind authority figures, FBI agent Jacob Rice and Dr. Leon Shen, who tries to make sense of her condition at the hospital. Unfortunately, Rice quickly becomes the new primary host of the Shadow King, and Dr. Shen's mind is quickly overpowered. Farouk as Rice frames the child Aurora for murder, making her a wanted fugitive. He also dispatches his op after her. Hounds, mind-controlled slaves akin to Rachel Summers' status in the Days of Future Past timeline. Leon Shen, now the Shadow King's enthralled servant, becomes their supervisor. Meanwhile, Aurora's lover Forge enters a meditative trance and is confronted on the astral plane by Amal Farouk, who makes it clear he intends to claim Storm for his own. In reality, Aurora is protected from the hounds by the mutant thief named Gambit, who becomes her partner in crime. He helps her confront Nanny, regain her memories, and eventually return to the X-Men. Meanwhile, on Muir Island, Lorna Dane's newly developed negative emotional energy powers, born the moment her sister Zaladane stole her magnetic abilities, are causing the whole island to slowly become evil, or 
something. Do not worry too much about it. The Muir Island X-Men, an ad hoc team created by Moira McTaggart, defend the facility from an attack by the Reavers. Among their number is Charles Xavier's son, David Haller, a.k.a. Legion, a godlike mutant limited by his severe mental illness. He's secretly been taken over by his evil personality, Jack Wayne, and Jack begins manipulating Lorna's strange new power for his own ends. When Forge and Moira ask Legion to use a Cerebro helmet to try finding the missing X-Men, Jack Wayne makes astral contact with the Shadow King, who quietly seizes control of Legion. This is confusing, isn't it? I know. Try to follow along. It's gonna be okay. In the explosion that results from the Cerebro feedback, Forge sees the astral image of Amal Farouk. Meanwhile, during the cross-time caper over in Excalibur, Claremont establishes an alternate Shadow King on another Earth. This version of Farouk is revealed to be the secret power behind the Lord's Cardinal of the Hellfire Club. As later stories will indicate there's only one Shadow King in the multiverse, similar to the omniversal nature of the Phoenix Force, the intent here seems to be that this is true on other Earths as well, including Earth-616. In stories around this time, Claremont begins to heavily imply that the Shadow King is an ancient force, and Amal Farouk, rather than being the origin of the psychic entity, was merely another host. Back on Muir Island, Legion's Jack Wayne personality, now heavily influenced by the Shadow King, uses Lorna to build a negative emotional energy nexus, pushing the island's residents further and further into depravity, and eventually spreading the energy field outward to begin infecting the entire world with violent hate and fear. This leads into the Muir Island saga, which was meant to launch Claremont's climactic Mutant Wars crossover. The intent here was that a final confrontation between Charles Xavier and Amal Farouk in Uncanny X-Men 300 would end in Charles' death and a dark new age for mutant kind. Behind the scenes, however, editor Bob Harris was becoming frustrated with Claremont's meandering storylines in the time since the X-Men had entered the Siege Perilous. He began interfering more and more with the story direction, until eventually Claremont quit in the middle of scripting 1991's Uncanny X-Men 279. The Muir Island saga was completed by Fabian Niciesa, who was brought in by Harris to tie up the plot as quickly as possible. The result is confusing. Jack Wayne is able to channel Lorna's negative energy to harness all of Legion's apparently limitless power, devastating the X-Men in battle. Charles and X-Factor, at this point still consisting of his original 60s X-Men, attack Muir Island with the help of FBI agent Rice, whom they aren't aware is actually the Shadow King's primary host. Rice betrays them, of course, but is betrayed in turn by his thrall Valerie Cooper. As it turns out, she's actually a disguised Mystique. Mystique executes Rice, and the Shadow King immediately seizes Legion as his new primary host. Charles attempts to reach his son telepathically at the center of the Legion, but is horrified to discover that David likes being possessed by Farouk. It brings order to the chaos of his mind. The X-Men are able to destroy his power base by freeing Lorna Dane from the Energy Nexus, and Betsy Braddock's new psychic knife, the focused totality of her psychic power, banishes the Shadow King back to the Astral Plane. Legion's mind is apparently destroyed as a result of Farouk's abrupt exit, and he is left in a vegetative coma. Shortly after the end of the Muir Island saga, Chris Claremont officially departs the X-Men franchise. The Shadow King falls into disuse until 1998, when Joe Kelly writes the story Psy War in X-Men 77 and 78. Aurora Monroe is summoned back to Kenya by her mother's tribe, and is accompanied there by Betsy Braddock. There, Aurora finds her foster mother, Inette, under the influence of a malevolent being that claims to be the spider god Anansi. But Psylocke is able to reveal his true nature as the Shadow King. He tricks Betsy into sparking a global telepathic shockwave, which utterly destroys her astral form and incapacitates most of the world's telepaths. In their absence, the Shadow King claims total rulership of the astral plane. Luckily, Betsy's developed new shadow powers because of the mystical dimension called the Crimson Dawn. Do not worry about it, and rebuilds a new astral form out of shadowy energy. She goads the Shadow King into pushing his power too far, and then manages to trap him within the darkness of her own mind. He's imprisoned indefinitely, but at a terrible price. Betsy can never use her telepathic powers again. 
When Chris Claremont returns to the X-Men franchise shortly thereafter, he uses the Shadow King as a villain in his 1999 time travel miniseries X-Men True Friends, in which the Shadow King, in the form of Farouk, aids the rising Nazi party in the 1930s in the hopes that their hateful ideology will expand his grip on reality. As Claremont assumes control of the franchise again for the 2000 revolution, he has Jean Grey unlock latent telekinesis in Betsy Braddock so she can continue to serve with the X-Men. The following year, he pivots into the new series Extreme X-Men, where he kills off Betsy in issue 3, intending to restore her to her original power set and her original body. Editorial interference prevented Betsy's resurrection for several years, but her death does free the Shadow King, who returns in the 2001 Extreme X-Men Annual after possessing the body of his one-time slave, Dr. Leon Shen. Teaming up with Donald Pierce and his Reavers to attack the Extreme X-Men and their ally Gateway, the Shadow King seeks to corrupt Gateway and Rogue. By making Rogue his Shadow Queen, he will be able to tap into the psyche she's borrowed over the years to spread his control network. By possessing Gateway, he will be able to access the Aboriginal Dreamtime and become omnipotent. I think. Don't worry about it, it doesn't work, and Rogue shuts him away again. The following year, Amal Farouk inexplicably appears in physical form as a standard telepathic supercriminal in Citizen V and the V Battalion. Don't worry about that either. Following House of M and the Decimation, Claremont begins writing New Excalibur, in which the titular team battles an evil version of the 60s X-Men from an alternate Earth. This Shadow X is led by, fittingly, a man called Shadow Xavier, who is ultimately revealed to be the Shadow King in Charles Xavier's body. After he's jailed, he explains to Betsy, who got better, that her death freed him and sent him traveling through the multiverse. Before she can kill Shadow Xavier, she's called away by a flash of light to become a member of the New Exiles, which you also don't need to worry about. A year later, Christopher Yost writes a miniseries called X-Men Worlds Apart about Storm's struggle to divide her time between the X-Men and the Kingdom of Wakanda, where she's now queen after marrying T'Challa the Black Panther. The Shadow King frames Aurora's former student Gentle for murder, and then possesses T'Challa and condemns Aurora as a traitor. She ultimately triumphs over the Shadow King by communing with Bast, the panther goddess of the Wakandans. Bast devours the Shadow King entity, apparently destroying it. But not quite. In 2011, the Shadow King returns once more in the form of Amal Farouk in Rick Remender's Uncanny X-Force, where he spends a lot of time tormenting Betsy Braddock with various schemes that honestly don't make a great deal of sense. They end up centering around Evan Sabiner, a young clone of Apocalypse whom Farouk seems to corrupt. Ultimately, Betsy locks the Shadow King in the brain-dead body of Omega White, an enemy of X-Force, and entrusts this new prison of flesh to her brother Brian, who is at this time the King of Avalon. Two years later, in Chris Claremont and Todd Knox's Nightcrawler solo series, the telepathic space pirate's bloody best, do not worry about it, accidentally wakes the Shadow King from his tomb in the Gobi Desert. Apparently, Brian put the body in a desert tomb there. I don't know why, you'd have to ask him. Bess and Nightcrawler team up with Betsy Braddock to battle the Shadow King on the astral plane and once again stuff him back into his prison. In 2017, writer Charles Soule launches a new volume of Astonishing X-Men in which Betsy's overpowered by the Shadow King and has to be rescued by her friends. Once she's herself again, she sends the X-Men into the astral plane to battle Farouk, and there they discover he's been holding the spirit of Charles Xavier captive since Charles died in Avengers vs. X-Men years earlier. Charles and Betsy are able to combine their telepathic powers to apparently obliterate the Shadow King entity from existence once and for all. In the 2019 soft reboot House of X and Powers of Ten by writer Jonathan Hickman, Amal Farouk is apparently one of countless dead mutants to be resurrected by the power of the mutant circuit called the Five. He joins the new sovereign nation of Krakoa and becomes the complex antagonist of much of Vita Ayala and Rod Race's run on New Mutants. This story reframes Farouk and the Shadow King as two explicitly separate beings, but two separate beings who merged into one long ago. In a remarkably humanizing portrayal of a character heretofore used mostly as a caricature or a boogeyman, Ayala reveals Farouk as the Shadow King's traumatized inner child in a brilliant story that Khaldun and I will talk a lot more about later in this episode. How was that? Was that okay? This one was rough. X-Men, X-Men.
Welcome back. I am here once again with tabletop game developer and Middle East scholar, Calden Khalil, talking about Amal Farouk, the Shadow King. I hope that the character file was not too difficult to follow. I have been doing a lot of research over the past week because this character is tricky. I looked at the Marvel Universe appendix. I looked at some blogs from way back in the day. I looked at some of Brian Cronin stuff. I, you know, if Brian Cronin is listening, or if anybody at CBR is listening, there are a lot of broken links to the old... Like, I wanted to look up the comic book legends revealed about the Muir Island saga, and it's dead. It's a dead link. So I'm just saying it would be nice if we could get those back, or just, like, I don't know, throw them in a Google Doc or something, because nobody does that like Brian, uncovering all of that behind-the-scenes stuff. Actually, when I was <laughs> trying to figure out exactly where all the retcons happen, I Googled Shadow King, Amal Farouk, separate entity, question mark, like an old person. <laughs> One of the things that came up was a Twitter thread by Adam Reck from Battle of the Atom, friend of the pod, where he caught one or two that I hadn't caught. So thank you to Adam, if you're listening. That's my story and I'm sticking to it. If I got some of it wrong, that's the best I can do. So we'll just <laughs> keep on trucking. Uh, and certainly I wouldn't be the first person to get confused by this storyline. Yeah, I mean, I'm still not clear on what exactly happened. So yeah, I get <laughs> Well, we're going to go through it now and see if we can't assess things a little better. Amal Farouk first appears in Uncanny X-Men 117. It's not called Uncanny yet. It's just X-Men 117, which is in 1979. This is Chris Claremont and John Byrne. A flashback story to Charles Xavier's early 20s-ish, I would say. It is right after his service in Korea or in the sliding timescale in whatever war that was. And he has gotten a Dear John letter from Dr. Moira McTaggart informing him that she, well, from Dr. Moira Kinross informing him that she intends to marry Joe McTaggart. He's devastated by that. And so instead of returning to the UK where they had been courting after a meeting at Oxford, he decides to travel the world on his inheritance, basically. Must be nice. Yeah. <laughs> So he stops off in Greece for a bit, and then he ends up in Egypt. A little girl with shocking white hair pickpockets him on the street. This is, of course, Storm. We have seen in previous stories Storm's childhood as one of Ahmed al-Jabbar's child thieves on the streets of Cairo after she was orphaned in the Suez Crisis. Charles senses it because he's telepathic and stops her where she stands, which freaks her out. But he can also feel that something strange and incredible is in her mind because he senses that she is also a mutant. Before he can talk to her, he is suddenly attacked on the astral plane by another psychic. And that psychic is Amal Farouk, who purports to be the lord of Cairo in a criminal underworld sense. Like, he is the kingpin of Cairo, as opposed to Ahmed al-Jabbar, who is more of like a Robin Hood kind of figure who's in the shadows with these kids. I mean, really is a Fagin the Jew figure. It's very Oliver Twist. Yeah, yeah it's very... But he's yeah, not evil, evil like Fagin. He's just a 
he's a nice old man <laughs> who teaches Dermot to use lockpicks. Farouk tries to convince Charles to join him and Charles protests because he feels that their psychic power is a gift and they are obligated to use it to help regular people and yada, yada, yada. It's the first time Charles has met an evil mutant using mutant powers to do crime. Farouk is positioned as Charles's dark opposite. He is also bald like Charles. He has a similar outfit on, like they're both in collared shirts. Like they sit across from each other at a table at this cafe and they end up fighting to the death on the astral plane. Farouk initially has the upper hand, but Charles, who is a truly remarkable telepath, is able to destroy him apparently. And when they return to reality, Farouk is slumped over dead on the table. This seems initially like it's a one-off story about Charles realizing, I have to go help people and going back to America and starting the X-Men. There is some setup work done here to allow for Farouk to come back at some point if Claremont so chose. I mean, the narration is very strong on that score. When Farouk first walks in, Charles says, Our eyes met, and in that instant the gauntlets were thrown. Without a word being spoken, we were bitter enemies. So there's an arch nemesis kind of vibe set up here. And one thing that's interesting that was pointed out to me by listener David Bowen is that Farouk's astral form in this story, I mean, both of them sort of wear armor on the astral plane. And Farouk's, this is again like part of sort of Chris's interest in the East and like an Orientalist aesthetic is like Farouk looks kind of like a samurai, like he has kind of like a samurai helmet kind of deal. But what David, the listener, pointed out to me was that on his helmet, there is a bird symbol that looks not unlike Jean's Phoenix insignia. And if you actually look at the classic X-Men cover for this issue, like when they reprint it as the origin of Professor X, this is classic X-Men 23. The cover is by Art Adams, and it's a much more obvious and prominent like bird symbol. I don't know what that means. I do think that over time, Claremont starts to position the Shadow King as the dark opposite to the phoenix but it's not really clarified beyond that and it's not really an idea that's super developed so just a thought there anyway farouk dies and as far as charles knows he's dead but there's a point made by farouk that death would last one second in physical form but that He's telling Charles what he's going to do to him. Like, I'm going to trap you on the astral plane for an eternity of suffering as you die. And the implication is that by turning it around in him, Charles has consigned him to that fate. But so far that Charles knows, he's dead. And decades then pass. All of the X-Men stories we know happen. It's not until 1983 in New Mutants number six that we get the return of the Shadow King, although we don't know at the time that that's what's going on because karma hears a voice say i have come to claim you body and soul forever chris loves a body and soul the shadow king loves body and soul that's like one of the most body and soul beats 
that Chris gets to hit over and over again is whenever the Shadow King possesses someone. <laughs> but Karma is apparently killed after she is overpowered by this psychic entity. And it's not until two years later that we find out it was the Shadow King who survived his battle with Xavier and became an astral being who exists on the psychic plane. We'll get to the karma story in a second, but I'd be curious for your thoughts on 117 and that first confrontation in Cairo. Well, I mean, it's kind of funny because yet again, it's an example of uh, of a kind of Xavier's incuriosity in a sense, mm-hmm. having to bite him in the ass, which is um, a funny and amusing reoccurring theme of the character. It's that like, he kind of like, well, that happened. Well, time to like continue on with, you know, my plans and what I'm all about. Like, I guess it's a very self-centered character. Um, and uh, the fact that he just assumes that the, you know, the fight is over and that's that. Uh, and then it, it comes back to, to haunt him quite literally. Uh, I, I find uh, amusing. Um, and yet again, um, you know, this character just heavily drawn from, you know, some tropes like uh, the King Farouk, King Farouk himself. Um, I think at that point in the, what you said, 1979. So at that point, I mean, he, I think he was, he'd already been deposed as a king and like was, um, yeah, like the real King Farouk, the former king of uh, yes. king Egypt, had been deposed and he kind of had this reputation as um, kind of uh a flamboyant and like gluttonous kind of like playboy. And, you know, the press obviously is the Western press for sure played that up. Um, so yeah, he'd been dead for about a decade. I want to say at that point, cause he died in the sixties in right. exile yeah. in Europe. Yeah. That, that, that sounds right. Yeah. So for, um, for them to kind of draw upon that figure for uh, art reference, um, I feel that, um, getting in calls in the question kind of that kind of uh i guess like uh, fat phobia in a sense because also as, as, as a young kid you know not at this point i i was also uh kind of heavy set so that was definitely something i noticed later more with you know the the next story with karma yeah well we'll get yeah we'll get to that it's like really slaps you in the <laughs> face oh my goodness sure does actually one one point of order while we're talking about the real king farouk it's actually worth noting that when he is deposed, which was in 52, in the Egyptian revolution that happened that year, that is the event that precipitates the 1956 Suez crisis, which is the event in which Storm's parents are killed. So it's clear that Claremont had done his research on this time period in Egypt. That is interesting to me if you're going back to Storm's childhood and you've already established that she was orphaned in the Suez crisis, they're like, all right, who's the bad guy for this? Oh, you know who had a distinctive look? King Farouk did. Like, I already have seen pictures of him because I was looking up stuff about the revolution. Like, so, you know, you can sort of see how uh, an improvisational writer like Claremont would arrive at that. And I agree that it's a great example, like in the origin of Charles Xavier, of a lot of character traits of Charles's that we've come to understand now, particularly in writers post Claremont who've really emphasized him because Claremont wasn't that captivated by Xavier and kind of shuffles him off the page as much as he can. I mean, I tend to think that Claremont wanted to kill him at the trial of Magneto. And then like, I don't know that for a fact, but it seems that way. It had been set up for a while after that mugging storyline earlier where he was really badly injured. And uh, I think that the compromise was send him to space. 
Uh, but he never seemed super keen on having Charles in the mix. Writers who came after, when they look at Claremont's Xavier stories, one of the things that I think they do identify is his belief in his own power and his incuriosity is a really good word for it. He's intellectually curious, but he's not usually that interested in like, investigating his mistakes. So like if he struck down Amal Farouk, but Obi-Wan Kenobi style made him more powerful than you can possibly imagine. <laughs> yeah. Like it was probably worth investigating that, right? But right. it doesn't seem like he did. So we get to the karma storyline. This is 1985. It's when Sunspot and Magma are kidnapped and taken to Los Angeles and forced to fight in a gladiatorial ring. Go back to, I guess, the Lila Cheney episode was the most recent time that I discussed this plot, but it's come up a few times on the show. The big reveal is that the exaggeratedly obese shadowy figure running the fight circuit and slave ring and all this other shit that's going on here is karma who survived her apparent death years earlier and is now apparently evil and fat uh, which is not initially explained all the new mutants feel very betrayed but storm recognizes her for who she really is Karma says, you know the truth, don't you? My true identity and origin, that I'm not Karma at all, but Charles Xavier's oldest, bitterest, deadliest foe, and slaps Storm away. <laughs> Little good that knowledge has done you. It will do him even less. You and these children shall be the instruments of my long-yearned-for vengeance. I confess my passion for self-preservation surprised even me. As my body died, I managed to shift my consciousness onto the astral plane. Xavier was so drained himself by our duel that he never noticed. My sole desire was vengeance, but Xavier's psychic defenses were too formidable. Then I perceived karma. I simply turned her power against her and possessed the girl. She still lives, imprisoned within her own mind. When this body has served its purpose, I'll move on to another, leaving her to take the blame for the crimes I have committed. The important point here is that as far as we are to understand in this story, the Shadow King is Amal Farouk. He was killed by Xavier and became this possessing entity because his body was dead, but he is just a mutant telepath who's super evil at this stage in the story. It's established that all of his hosts become incredibly obese because of his insatiable gluttony. So when Sean comes back to herself, which she manages to go back to the karma episode, we talk a bit about this storyline. The problem with it is like, I mean, Bill Sienkiewicz draws the hell out of it, but the way karma is rendered, like both on the, this is a really nasty depiction of fat people front, but also a lot of Asian people just don't love this story because of the way karma is drawn in it. And I think that that is fair. Love you, Bill. But you know, it's, it's just, it's a little caricature yeah. in places but karma manages to defeat him she sort of wakes up in her own head after magic and warlock have been futzing with farouk in her body and there's a sequence on the astral plane where she bursts free from the fat body she's now trapped in and chases him back into the ether Mes amis, my fellow mutants, never gave up, and nor shall I. Were I as weak as you say, I would have died with my parents when we fled Vietnam. I would have let my evil brother Tran consume and destroy me. But I did not. You are the coward Farouk. You, the skulker in shadows who delights in harming those weaker than yourself. 
that chases him back to the astral plane to, you know, scheme and plot once more for revenge on Xavier or whatever it is exactly that he does. That's New Mutants 34, and he doesn't pop up again until four years later in 1989 when Storm has been de-aged by Nanny and has lost her memories and just knows that she's supposed to go to Cairo, so she ends up in Cairo, Illinois which is pretty funny. <laughs> Classic mistake. Well, she's just like, why am I in America? Like, she doesn't remember anything from after the age of 11. And she doesn't have her powers. Jacob Rice is introduced in this issue. He is a long-suffering FBI agent who is a good cop or whatever, but not for long because the Shadow King possesses him and takes him as a new host. Forge is taken to the astral plane where he has a confrontation with the Shadow King there. He sees Storm in like a birdcage behind Rice and Farouk. The Shadow King introduces himself as Amal Farouk, which is interesting, not as, you know, the Shadow King. And Forge notices Storm and is like, oh my God, it can't be. And Farouk says, you know my toy? You like her? Splendid. She and I go back a long way. This worthy gentleman about Agent Rice has already tried his best to save her. Would you care to test your strength? And Forge says, who are you? And Farouk says, a ghost, a demon, a nightmare, whose fondest desire is to once more be a man. So his motivation in this period seems to be to have a body that he can stay in, right? It's just not a thousand percent clear because Claremont keeps him kind of mysterious. But the Shadow King has beef with Storm because he and the tribe that her mother comes from go way, 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 way back. So he wants her dead. <laughs> so he, you know, puts an APB out on her on the TV news as Agent Rice, and it's a bad situation. That's how she ends up with Gambit, who protects her and defends her and is, you know, a fellow thief and they have adventures together. That is where Claremont's recent Gambit miniseries was set, is during that period when little Roe is traveling with Gambit. This is during the Siege Perilous era, so it's not like every issue we check in with Storm. It bounces around between all the characters because the X-Men have been separated. In 256 to 267 is the stuff with Gambit they are chased down by operatives of the Shadow King, but also by Nanny, who's been chasing after her all this time, and the Orphan Maker. The big takeaway is that fighting Nanny brings Storm's memories back, and that compels them to go to the X-Mansion, and that leads into Extinction Agenda, where Storm is reunited with the X-Men. In the interim, between possessing rice and the stuff with gambit and storm there's an interesting bit in excalibur in the cross time caper we see an alternate earth this is earth 2122 where the following details of the hellfire club are described and we see a splash page where farouk is on a big mound of pillows it's very like here is the sultan and his harem he has Celine and emma on golden leashes and emma is dead bleeding out of her eyes and mouth which is pretty wild this is a wild uh, a wild page 
One rule exists within these walls, that of power. The world is divided into those who have it, those who covet it, and the vast desperate multitude exploited by them both. The Lord's cardinal command here, two kings, two queens, of black and white, but it's whispered by those who consider themselves already doomed and condemned, for no one else would have such fool's courage, that they are but puppets, dancing on the strings of a creature known only as the Shadow King. If ever a man existed who defined the term evil, it is he. And he's looking at Emma's dead body and says, Tis, 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 my pretty pet is no more. Poor Miss Frost, the White Queen's as cold and pale now as her name. Hardly the scenario, mastermind, that you guaranteed. And we see that it's sort of a version of the Dark Phoenix saga where the Shadow King enlists mastermind to help him brainwash Jean Grey into becoming the Shadow Queen. This is interesting mostly because it's a pretty close alternate Earth. And so... The idea that the Shadow King is the true power behind the throne at the Hellfire Club somehow might also be true on Earth-616, and that is the implication in other stories. Again, this is where Claremont begins kind of pivoting to establish the Shadow King as the big bad of his entire franchise. Around this same time is the sequence where Moira comes to visit Rain in America in New Mutants, and they are all stunned by slutty Moira because she's wearing leather miniskirts and acting very weird. All of that is setting up the Muir Island stuff around the same time that Nanny is chasing down Storm and Gambit. This is uh, 265, 266, 267-ish. There's the whole bit with Valerie Cooper. Go back to the Val Cooper episode. We see that Rice has enslaved Val to his will, although she's so strong-willed that she can still cry a tear. There's also a character who you don't super have to worry about, but it's kind of interesting because I don't know what the plan was with her, but there's this doctor, Leanne Shen, who the Rice version of the Shadow King like enslaves as his minion, but also like as a sex slave in a way that is pretty overt. And this is like a portion of the story where Farouk also becomes very sexually predatory. There's a bit in the Muir Island stuff, like the run up where his astral form like seduces Rogue in the shower. There's just like a lot of weird stuff. And this is where we start to see also his operatives called the Hounds who wear Rachel's BDSM gear from the Days of Future Past, which is very peculiar, right? And that's when you start to realize, you know, Claremont never defined who the Houndmaster was in the Days of Future Past. It's Louise Simonson who creates Ahab. So it's kind of like, okay, is the implication here that the Houndmaster was a host of the Shadow King? Because then you look at Days of Future Past and again, it becomes about the Phoenix versus the Shadow King, embodied in Rachel versus the Houndmaster and the daughter of the Phoenix being enslaved by the Shadow King and then freeing herself and escaping into the past and claiming the Phoenix. So there's something going on here, but that isn't really how it shakes out. And in his successive returns, Claremont will try to tighten up a lot of this Shadow King stuff with the hounds and with other things, but it's never quite been explained. And there are other characters, particularly Elias Bogan and Talamor Vosges in Claremont's Returns in the Revolution period for Vosges and then in uh, Extreme for Elias Bogan, who I think are clearly stand-ins for the Shadow King because he wasn't able to use the Shadow King in the story because of Cywar with Betsy. So 
Farouk is intimidating, but it's the Jacob Rice version of the Shadow King that I find particularly scary. The way that he mentally dominates these women, the way that Val tries so hard to fight back. It's just like, it's really spooky stuff to me in a way that is different. It's not a thousand percent clear why the Shadow King wants Storm, but he does. Sends Lian Chen and the Hounds after her, but uh, that doesn't go super well either. Your hounds, Lord, have followed Storm's trail to what I believe is her hideout, but we are about to move in. Do what you will with her accomplice, but Aurora I want alive and unharmed. Is that understood? As the Shadow King commands. He wants her. There's implications as we go into Storm's backstory. Claremont was very interested in establishing that Storm came from a lineage of sorceresses. And so she has this great, 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 great grandmother called Ashake, who's like an ancient Kenyan sorceress who has the white hair as well. In the Gambit stuff that just came out, the Gambit miniseries, little amnesiac storm is trained on the astral plane by the spirit of Ashake to fight the Shadow King. And Ashake says that she and the Shadow King have a long history together. So the implication there is that Farouk was opposed in his power base in East Africa by the witches of Storm's tribe, perhaps. And uh, that that's part of his interest in her. It actually perhaps explains why he was in that cafe when Charles encountered him. Because that's when Storm pickpockets Charles. Maybe Farouk was after Aurora before noticing Charles. So there's just questions there. And it hasn't really ever been super adequately answered. The Muir Island stuff. I guess it's, it's kind of the transition of the character away from, yeah, just like a dispossessed spirit looking for a body, uh, like that there's some bigger plan um, afoot. Mm -hmm. like, it does get a bit muddled. Uh, like I, I always kind of find the character most interesting uh, when it in, when when he's in the, when he lists when he's in the disembodied aspect. I find it most interesting when it's like, well, what type of body is he looking for? Is he looking for a super powerful mutant? Uh, is there, you know, someone that, you know, is going to be kind of, um, you know, his forever home in a sense? And what does that look like? Eventually, he'll become so powerful, um, whether through retconning, I, I don't even know exactly. I, I guess it wasn't originally the plan, I assume, because he becomes kind of right, like this cosmological entity, like this multiversal, um, as you say, uh, the dark reflection of the phoenix in a sense kind of entity. So why he can't, in a sense, almost uh, recreate a body or find a character who could do that for him, um, you know, like a Proteus type uh, or even a Legion type in some level, it seemed to solve his problem. There's an interesting bit Adam Reck pointed out in his thread that I hadn't caught, which is that in Uncanny 273, uh, when Gene and the Shadow King fight on the astral plane because Gene's using Cerebro and like they get into it. He says, pain is something I've dealt with since the day your precious Xavier bested me. And the editorial note says, as Amal Farouk in X-Men 117. Right. That's interesting because the implication there is that like Amal Farouk is someone else. Exactly. Like that, it, that, that somehow. That that was when he was Amal Farouk. But like, it's not just that this guy is Amal Farouk. It's like, that was, he did this 
as that identity, you know? Right. Which I think sets that up. That's also when we start seeing the like astral demon form that he will be identified with more strongly in the 90s. That form actually does first appear in the Cross Time Caper story in that alternate Excalibur reality. A few issues later, he possesses Colossus and sicks him on Stevie Hunter in Salem Center back in New York. This part's interesting to me because Inferno had established that Colossus was incorruptible by the demons and, and by magic. And here the Shadow King possesses him. And I think it's because of the Siege Perilous taking his identity. Because this is after Colossus has lost his memories and become the artist Peter Nicholas in New York. And the X-Men have chosen to leave him alone and not to bother him because he seems happy in his life. Colossus, as you remember him, indeed as he remembers himself, no longer exists. He has been an instrument serving the will of the Shadow King. The time has come to settle old scores and bring about the fulfillment of a destiny too long denied. Both involve the destruction of Charles Xavier's school, his beloved pupils, and ultimately the man himself. Doesn't he, like, throw a car at Xavier? <laughs> <laughs> that? Like, like a flaming car, if I remember correctly. I have, I have a very distinct image of, like, Colossus, like, you know, like they like to do with with the like fire like reflected on his metal skin. I feel if uh if Colossus's heart was really in it, uh especially if uh you know with the Shadow King kind of uh puppeting him and making him somewhat resistant to any mental attacks that if he really wanted to um break Charles Xavier in half, there's not much uh there's not much that could be done about that. You know, legs or no legs. Yeah. Stevie is forced to let Colossus Shadow King into the mansion and Charles jumps in his brain and realizes like the only way, and this is pretty tragic. And this is actually from Claremont's final issue of uh, Uncanny. And by some accounts is the last scene that he ever wrote for Uncanny in that 16 year period. Charles decides he has no choice but to reboot Piotr's mind and delete the Peter Nicholas personality that the siege created and restore him to himself oh, that's so charles it's very charles <laughs> you know he's like peter nicholas has become fully a slave to the shadow king and the only way to restore peter to himself is to you know bring him back so that's how colossus ends up rejoining the x-men but it would have been a much happier ending for colossus to just go on being peter nicholas for the rest of his life to go back a sec, first, shit's been getting fucking weird on your island <laughs> over the last, like, 20 issues. Polaris is there because Zeladane took her magnetic powers in Uncanny 250, and in their place, Lorna has developed new powers. She grows to huge size and superhuman strength by absorbing negative emotions around her. This is just never properly explained. I have ideas for right. how I might explain it if I were to get to write about Lorna and Zala and all of that stuff. I but... think having Magneto as a dad is a pretty good explanation for why. <laughs> well, right. But the, the weird power switch is like very, like, where does this all come from? And eventually it's sort of retcon explained that this negative energy power came from the Shadow King. But that doesn't right. really make sense because Lorna first developed it in the Savage Land before she got to Muir Island. She ends up on Muir Island because she starts unintentionally amping up the violent impulses of all the people on the ship that rescued her because her negative emotion empathy is like out of control. And that's why Banshee ends up rescuing her. Um, 
So not super clear. But the point is Lorna's on Muir Island now. This is where Moira confirms that Zaladane is genetically her sister. Just putting that out there. And her negative energy just starts radiating out to the whole island and people just get nastier and nastier. <laughs> so when the Muir Island X-Men fight the Reavers and Legion is injured, nobody notices when his evil persona Jack Wayne takes over his body because everyone's pretty much on edge because Lorna's been amping everybody up and can't turn it off. Legion locks Polaris in the cell where Moira used to keep Proteus, <laughs> which is pretty hard to get into. And Jack Wayne, who's in control now of the Legion Gestalt, starts making evil plans. He uses Cerebro at Forge's behest to try and find the X-Men who are missing following Inferno and the Siege Perilous. And, hmm... What's this out in the astral plane that Cerebro has suddenly ping ping picked up? It's the Shadow King. Forge is able to recognize in the explosion the image of Amal Farouk because he saw him on the astral plane when they had their argument about Storm. Farouk, or the Shadow King, let's say, I guess, looks around at Mir Island and is like, wow, this place is really going to hell. I can exploit that and jumps into Legion's body and begins using Legion's vast power to push Lorna's negative energy field higher and higher and higher until everyone on the island is basically crazy and like doing blood sport in the arena and like all of that crazy stuff. See, now I understand it a lot better than I did because I right. I, I thought it was the Shadow King himself who was somehow manipulating. Like I thought they'd ramped up his psychic powers where he was the one doing the, you know, bad. He is, but it relates to Lorna somehow because they stop him by shutting Lorna down later. Gotcha. So... Like, this is where it starts to get confusing because the editors are messing with whatever Chris wanted to do here. This is only 10 issues before he's taken off the book. <laughs> There's a whole plot with Proteus. Don't worry about that because we'll get to that in a Proteus episode at some point. But Legion, who is still secretly the host of The Shadow King, amps up Polaris to the point where she starts, like, spreading her negative energy power across the whole world. The X-Men finally show up because they were in space rescuing Charles Xavier from stuff in the Shi'ar Empire. Don't super worry about it. Go back to uh, the Lila Cheney episode. Actually, again, we, we talked about that plot because Lila helps. When Storm comes face to face with Legion, the Shadow King is like, kill her, kill her, kill her. I fucking hate Storm. And <laughs> Legion says no. David, I guess I should say. David Holler says no. But Jack Wayne's like, sure, love that. Let's do it. And is still enough in control that he's able to do that. This storyline was supposed to, again, be about 20 issues longer and was to be called Mutant Wars. Unless I'm conflating, but I'm pretty sure that, that, that it was all one storyline. It was going to involve the X-Men and Excalibur and the new X-Factor team that is developing and the old X-Factor team that merges into the X-Men as part of the end of Muir Island saga and uh, the developing new mutants into X-Horse stuff. And all of it was supposed to come together and it was supposed to be mutant versus mutant, big 
changes were going to happen in the franchise in the 90s were going to be crazy because Xavier was going to die and who will lead the future of the mutant race and just like none of this happens. What happens in Miran Saga is X-Factor, this is still the 05 X-Factor at this point, and Charles go to Muir Island to rescue the X-Men. They fight all of the puppet people that are walking around at the behest of the Shadow King. Jacob Rice, who they don't know is evil, turns out to, as we know, be the Shadow King and attacks Charles. Uno reverse. Yes. The battle is distracting enough, though, that Valerie Cooper, who it turns out is Mystique in disguise, is able to kill Rice by shooting him in the fucking head. Classic Mystique move. Classic Mystique move. I recently discovered from uh, the Claremont Run project, one of the things I need to do maybe between seasons or maybe actually this uh, holiday season when I'm back in New York is Columbia has Claremont's papers and it has some of his like notes and stuff about developing these storylines. Apparently in the outline for Mutant Wars and the Muir Island Saga that was within it. But the library at Columbia University? Yeah, they have his papers. No shit. No shit. <laughs> you can go read them. It's like all his no. handwritten notes and stuff that he gifted to uh, to the library. There's all kinds of wild shit in there. There's like his ini- and the thing about him is he doesn't really pre-plan that much. So it's very like I've seen a lot of pictures of like things and like the Days of Future Past notes. It's like future question mark like Sentinels. You know, like it's not it's, it's, he does not writing out like outlines, but. One of the things that is in the notes that I didn't know about until I read this in a thread that Andrew did at Claremont Run, I think it was Andrew, whoever it was, I think he's the one who does like the Twitter account, is that it was supposed to be Charlotte Jones, the police officer who is Angel's love interest in X Factor by this point. She was supposed to have a pretty big role in Muir Island Saga and to be the one who executes Rice. Which is interesting because she's a character that Claremont did not create, but that he clearly really likes because she's another one that he brings back all the time whenever he comes back. So that would have been kind of cool, but she sort of falls by the wayside once Claremont and Simonson are off the books. So it wouldn't have had great dividends and it works out better on some level to have it tie up the Mystique and Val Cooper plot that's been brewing for a long time, especially because at this point, Claremont has already laid out the concept for the relaunch of X-Factor, which is going to involve Val and Havoc and Wolfsbane and like TBD other characters once Peter David was due to take over it. That whole period is just like very opaque to us on some level, but we have interviews and things where we've started to see maybe what was going to happen. Like initially the gold team in the relaunch was going to feature Forge and Strong Guy. And then once Claremont leaves, Strong Guy's on X Factor instead. Forge is more of a supporting character in that book. Like there's just a lot of shakeups that happened in this period. But point is by that point they know that Val Cooper is going to be Havoc's government liaison in the new X Factor. So it makes sense to resolve that plot and bring back Mystique so that she and Rogue can have a moment and like all of that. Point is Mystique shoots him in the head. The rice body dies. The Shadow King has been, like, when I say he was possessing Legion or possessing Polaris or possessing Moira, at this point he's possessing the whole island, but Rice was the primary host. He needs a new primary host, so he jumps into Legion, who's the most powerful mutant around him, because he's not 
insane, he's able to command the full force of Legion's Omega level power and immediately releases a psychic shockwave that kills like 70% of Muir Island. I think it says about two thirds. Just straight up kills him. Luckily, no one we care about. So that's useful for us. Charles shows up with the shield agents who are backing him up. This is uh, X-Factor 70 now. He reaches out to David, to Legion, to be like, we need to free you from the Shadow King. And he is distressed by the realization that David welcomes Farouk, or welcomes the Shadow King, however we want to put it, because the Shadow King has brought order to his mind. Yeah, and you could have, th- you would have think they would have thought so- found somebody better than Charles to talk to David, actually. You would think, right? But I mean, I guess no one else was super available. And so David's about to kill his dad because he loves being the Shadow King's slave until Storm shows up and is like, no, 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 no. And then he runs away to check on Polaris, who he's using as his power nexus. She's called a nexus a bunch of times. Bad vibes generator. Yeah, exactly. The X-Men are able to free her from the Shadow King. This is Nisiesa and everybody else tying up the plot after Claremont's been booted from the room, essentially. Because, again, the Shadow King created this power in Lorna is not what happened in the initial story. But now, when they sever her connection to the Shadow King, because Zaladane has died by this point in uh, Uncanny 275... And the minute that she has her connection to the Shadow King severed, her original powers return to her. And that resets her to factory settings in time for the X-Factor relaunch. But it's just never really been adequately explained. And if I ever got to write the Polaris Prestige miniseries, it's probably something I would tackle. Not that I would want to give her those powers back, because I don't. But I think that going, hey, what was that about? Might be like an interesting thing to, to pick apart, especially if you're untangling the Dane sister stuff. Anyway, when the Shadow King is pushed away from Lorna and the Shadow King jumps out of David and like flees into the astral plane, the destruction left in the Shadow King's wake leaves David basically a vegetable. Charles goes into his mind and finds nothing there. Not a single member of the Legion. They're all gone. I feel David's mind simply wink out I reach for my son and it is too late. I would weep for him were there time, but there was never time for David and I must guide my students out of danger and into the light. And that's kind of it. So at this point, Claremont's gone. Mirror Island is saved. I don't know. I mean, um... What the plan was here is just so deeply unclear and I just am curious. Well, I mean, it... it... I, I will have to say, though, that that last, like, moment when, yeah, when the Shadow King leaves David kind of as a vegetable, I, I I do find it, like, yeah, very poignant, like, what uh, Xavier says there. I love that line, yeah. Yeah, and it clarifies his character's priorities very much. Mm-hmm. And even as we see, like, in the new runs, like, their relationship, I feel it's a very clarifying moment about why their relationship is so toxic. There was never time for David is right. just a great line. Peter David... Yeah freak that yeah and whenever and i have to say like you know whenever david is a total dick to xavier <laughs> uh, i can't help but be like great 
I also want to note, I think this is why the Shadow King fucking hates Betsy in the 90s. The way that they get the Shadow King out of Polaris is that she psychic knifes Polaris in the Nexus mm. situation. So, like, it's Psylocke's psychic knife that sends the Shadow King fleeing. And I imagine that he's like, wow, I don't like her. Uh, <laughs> and that'll come back to haunt her later is it also during this period i think that like destiny gets killed that's earlier it's during all of this muir island stuff she dies in the 250s but yes and then he's haunted by her and it's like is it really her is he just having a psychotic hallucination what's going on not 100 percent clear and again like i will say listeners I'm not as up on the behind the scenes stuff, like in terms of about what Chris was planning with Muir Island and the mutant wars, apart from the death of Charles, I know that Wolverine was supposed to have like his dark Wolverine saga around here, but I don't really remember a ton of what was supposed to happen in it. So if you're one of those people who's like done a deep dive on that, feel free to email cerebrocast at gmail.com with, with more on that and let me know if there's anything I'm missing. I do want to point out just to go back a little bit, that a little earlier in the Muir Island saga, we get a sequence where the Shadow King in his like very demonic looking, like not Farouk, this is some weird ancient thing form, is talking to Leanne Shen on the astral plane. He narrates, which is interesting. This is Uncanny X-Men 278, so Claremont's penultimate issue. It's 1991. And when I say penultimate issue, I mean of Uncanny. He stayed on to do the relaunch, Adjectiveless X-Men 1 through 3, but that was something he negotiated with Harris, basically, like that he would get a send-off, like that he would get to do one last, you know, hurrah. But so Dr. Shen and the Shadow King are like scrying from the astral plane on specifically a homophobic rally in England. We see Big Ben in the background. It has uh, a real resonance with today, actually, <laughs> like, and the transphobic stuff that is really just particularly awful in the UK right now. They're holding up signs that say, no perverts allowed and AIDS is God's punishment, which is pretty bold for a Marvel comic. Yikes. Yeah. And, you know, isn't allegorical like the legacy virus that will pop up a year or so later. It's, look, these people hate gay people and want them to die. The Shadow King is like having a glass of like rosé with bubbles and sitting with Leanne. His sex slave being an Asian woman in bondage gear is again a thing where you're like, Chris, like we don't have to, okay, if we must. First he narrates, which is cool in the way that Charles narrates some of these other issues we've been saying. A different order of reality, place beyond space, meaning beyond time. Possibilities unfettered by the anchor of fleshly physicality, limited solely by one's imagination, which in my case is as infinite as my desires are insatiable. Here in this realm of shadows that touched every living mind, I am king. And then he says to Leanne, Behold, my darling Leanne, how easily, how eagerly they hate. The excuse could be anything, color, religion, politics, sex, whatever comes to their inventive little minds, whatever they fear most. The littlest nudge is all it ever takes. This is when he is spreading his hate now across the globe using Polaris and engine. And those raging passions of humanity, that unbridled source of power, I shall make it my own, and the Shadow King shall rule supreme. Your plan is grand, Lord, your power awesome. Yet how often have your designs been thwarted by Charles Xavier? Ah! And he plucks her up. 
You are a valued chattel, Dr. Shen. Do not provoke me to your obliteration. If such is my lord's desire. Of all my foes, only the accursed Xavier and his students have ever given me a decent contest, which you have yet to win. True, my purpose is not so long as the X-Men remain to bar the way, but merely slaying them is too quick and easy a vengeance. Better by far to break them to my yoke, Lian, as I did you. That their mentor, Xavier, may witness the contamination of light by shadow, the supplantation of his dream with mine. And I think that that, again, is like sort of the light and shadow, right. the phoenix and the shadow king. There's a Zoroastrian kind of vibe being set up here by claremont like or the, we're like you know he's the the great satan to her messianic right. figure it's manichaean that. duality yeah very <laughs> manichaean uh, in the following issue that when colossus is possessed there's a bit where we flash back to 117 and the shadow king says I lived a lifetime in the form of Amal Farouk. The body served me well. Perhaps I grew too comfortable in it, too complacent. Perhaps that was the edge that allowed you to defeat me. So that's just fully now a retcon by Claremont on his way out the door that I lived in the form of Amal Farouk. I lived in this body. And he then, as Colossus picks up Charles, he says, when my corporeal host died, my psychic essence survived on the astral plane. Tell me, Charles, will you be able to do the same? <laughs> Which is a good bit. And it turns out, yes, is the answer, as we'll get to later. But using the phrase corporeal host to refer to Farouk is a pretty done deal thing, right? That is, uh, I think, the, the final word there. And then the stuff we talked about happens with possessing legion and all of that and it all ends and charles is left with there was never time for david and is crippled once again is really bummed about that the big fallout of muir island saga for people who have not read it and it's not very widely read because it is seen as like a story that became a real fucking mess but it's worth reading there's good stuff here and even though Chris doesn't get to finish out his plot, he gets to do enough weird, interesting things that it's worth reading, in my opinion. One of the funnier things to me that like shows how clearly Chris gets taken off the book is that Amanda Sefton disappears. Because no one else, like she just between issues is no longer in the story. Because like, I guess Fabian was just like, who, what? The big fallout of the Muir Island saga is that the X-Factor team and the X-Men team merge back into one and that sets the stage for the relaunch of adjectiveless in 1991 and the blue team gold team setup that will be the iconic status quo of the early 90s that will lead to the cartoon for example and like it's that team it's the jim lee relaunch which chris writes the first three issues of before departing the Shadow King doesn't appear again until 1998 in the storyline Cywar by Joe Kelly, who is on the book at this point following the onslaught crisis with Steve Siegel on Uncanny. Storm is summoned back to Kenya by an old woman named Inette, who is her foster mother, basically, when she came back to Kenya after leaving Cairo. Inette was the woman of her mother's tribe who took her in and like taught her their ways and all of that for the years preceding Giant Size X-Men number one. Inette is being manipulated by the god Anansi. Uh... Sorry to 
blow up Joe Kelly's spot like this, but the god Anansi is a West African god, most prominent in the folklore of Ghana, and not a god revered by anyone in Kenya, as far as I know. <laughs> but you know what? All right. Uh, we'll just... The thing is... Anansi is the spider god, and spider imagery has always been something the Shadow King uses, so when it's revealed... Yeah, with the webs and all that stuff, yeah, not too much of a puppetry. There's this whole drama with Anansi and Inet, who's been possessed, basically, wants to betroth Storm to the god Anansi, and Psylocke, again as she did on Muir Island, stabs the god with her psychic knife, and he is revealed to be the Shadow King in disguise. The Shadow King now does not look like Farouk. Like I said, in the 90s, they're very careful about that. Yeah, they kind of make him look a lot more like Apocalypse. In yeah, Myers. yeah. He's right. like just a blue, scary guy. He has the pointy teeth that he has from his demonic form in the late 80s. But he reveals himself to be the Shadow King, and he explains that with Xavier no longer policing the astral plane following the onslaught crisis, he was able to return to Earth. So the idea is basically that Charles has been keeping an eye out for him, but has now not been paying attention. He tricks Betsy into releasing a global telepathic shockwave that makes everyone with access to the astral plane freak out. Betsy's astral form is completely obliterated by this. This is the event Cywar. But because of her connection to the Crimson Dawn, do not worry about it. She <laughs> she pulls wow. together from the astral shadows a new shadowy astral form that the Shadow King can't see. She rescues the X-Men. This is an interesting storyline because Joe Kelly did not like Psylocke, Ninja Psylocke, like the 90s character. He found her boring. He didn't like that he had her on his team. There's an interview where he and Steve Siegel talk about how Psylocke and Bishop are the two characters that they just had no idea what to do with. And so a lot of Psylocke fans had like beef with this story because the resolution is that Betsy seals the Shadow King away forever by trapping him in her mind and shutting down her own telepathy and vowing never to use it again. It writes her out of the story, which is a good reason for fans to be upset if they like that character being in the team. But to my mind, it's the best ninja betsy story like and i mean i realize i'm just not a huge like as a i'm a big betsy braddock fan i am primarily a big betsy braddock fan from 1976 through 1989 and 2018 to the present i mean i think that ninja Psylocke is cool but she's a lot cooler now that she's her own character who's not betsy stuffed into an asian woman's corpse right yeah i mean that character was definitely part of that whole kind of everything has to have ninjas in it um yes. bad that was you know so like you know everything from gi joe uh on basically everything had, had ninjas in it she's very mortal combat and i love mortal combat but it's just like that's not betsy braddock to me right Fabian said when he was on my show, he was like, I never thought of Ninja Psylocke as being Betsy Braddock. I just approached her as a new character. That's why he came up with the Kanon retcon in the first place, because he used it to explain why she had a completely different personality. But anyway, point is, a lot of Psylocke fans don't like this story because it meant Psylocke left the X-Men. 
I think it's the most cool, exciting thing Betsy gets to do that entire decade. So, you know, beggars can't be choosers kind of on some level. She has this great line. He calls her one insignificant X-Man earlier in the story. And then after she traps him, she says, you were definitively vanquished by, how did you put it? One insignificant X-Man. And incidentally, you look ravishing entombed in darkness, love. And she just promises that she will never, ever use her powers again. This story also... uh, (laughs) At one point, the Shadow King says, Are we ready to make a deal? Like, again, very deal with the devil, Satan vibes to him in this story. Talent, fame, beauty, all can be yours if you say the magic words. Hurt me, daddy. Which for an issue not by Chris Claremont is about the most Claremontian villain moment I can imagine. So the next few years, it's basically Betsy's got the Shadow King in her head. She can't use her telepathy. When Claremont comes back for the revolution, he has Gene unlock Betsy's telekinesis that was latent, allegedly. This is why Betsy has telekinesis and has since 2000 is because Chris was like, well, I'm not not using Psylocke, so if the Shadow King's trapped in her brain and she can't use telepathy, then we got to give her other powers. I mean, obviously, really. Right, yeah. (laughs) So between those two stories is X-Men True Friends. And I always skip over X-Men True Friends on this podcast, so I I don't want to skip over it here. X-Men True Friends, for those who don't remember, is the story where Kitty Pryde and Rachel Summers are sent back in time and end up in, I think, 1936, and Kitty decides to kill Hitler. And Destiny has to tell her, like, you can't do that. It will really fuck up the whole timeline, unfortunately. She's like, I get it, because I can see the future. Like, I get why you want to kill this guy, but you really, you really can't. It involves Kitty meeting Moira's grandfather, Alistair Kinross, who she falls madly in love with. It's just a very weird miniseries. This is 1999. The thing that is craziest about it that has never come up on this podcast somehow is that the plot that develops is Kitty and Rachel becoming besties with Queen Elizabeth, like who at the time is Princess Lilibet, but like... The recently deceased Her Highness Queen Elizabeth II of England Uh, as a young woman, like she and Kitty are besties and the Shadow King possesses them both because in this period, the Shadow King is working for Hitler. Wowie. Well, I, uh, I, I'm, I don't know if I'm sad I missed that story. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, he, he's working for Hitler because Hitler is spreading hate and the Shadow King is powered by hate because Claremont's now very committed to like, he's like a primordial being born from hate and fear. Right. The world that hates and fears them, right, is like the idea is the X-Men protect the world that hates and fears them. And so the Shadow King is the manifestation of fear and hate. And they have to fight against it to prove that harmony is possible. In that way, Claremont's Shadow King is something of a precursor to Morrison's concept of sublime who represents the Earth's natural response to change, the idea of humanity trying to create stagnation and stasis because they fear evolution, sublime being that impulse. The Shadow King is the impulse to hate the other and to fear it. 
So it makes sense to work for Hitler. But there's a big moment where Kitty calls out like, oh my God, it's Amal Farouk, the Shadow King. And he's like, how do you know my name? I don't like that at all. But you know, like, it's, it's, she's like, you know, fighting, 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 yada, yada, yada. True Friends is not something you deeply have to worry about. It's a time travel story. But, you know, they stop the Shadow King. But he does possess Queen Elizabeth at one point. I mean, that would explain a great deal. Well, only briefly. Like, she kicks him out or they knock him out of her or whatever. Oh, okay. but, I, I'm, but I'm just saying Princess Lilibet was briefly a, a host of the Shadow King. Anyway, uh, then... <laughs> Well, I think this just goes to show that, you know, um, people had a very limited sense of what to use this character for. Yeah. And once he was kind of divorced from his kind of classic Amal Farouk body, then it became even more nebulous what exactly this character Well, he's just kind of a general evil thing. And this is, again, like Claremont got an opportunity to use him because it's a time travel story. So Claremont's, of course, like, okay, I'm going to do a Shadow King thing because he loves to do a Shadow King thing, but he couldn't because when he came back to the books, the Psy War had just happened and Betsy had locked him away. Which I imagine is frustrating if you're Chris and you show up and your big bad has just been taken off the board in a crossover. After True Friends, Chris starts writing the revolution stuff briefly, but then when Morrison is brought on to do new X-Men, Chris is given extreme X-Men instead, and in the third issue of that, Betsy is killed by the villain Vargas, This was, as we recently discussed in the Gateway and Manifold episode, part of Claremont's plan to bring Betsy back in her original body with her original powers. But that was nixed by editorial, so it just kind of doesn't go anywhere for a couple years. However, the death of Betsy releases the Shadow King back into the astral plane. Yeah, I guess the one thing I would say is... um... Growing up in the 90s, I think there was definitely, um, like, how popular that Psylocke ninja character was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was kind of, it was hard, it was hard to overstate, Oh, like, the following that character had. Every boy had a poster of her. She was massive. That's why, you know, everybody, I get it. People are like, why can't Canon put some pants on? I'm like, because they tried to put pants on Betsy for 30 years, and no one would let them put pants, because that Jim Lee design is one of the most iconic in comic books. Right. It was so popular. It was so wildly popular. And that's the only way that a story that nakedly insane could be allowed to continue for that long. Claremont intended to turn her into this hand ninja for three issues and then have her get like the illusion shattered. But it ends up, because he leaves the book, it ends up lasting for 30 years because everyone was obsessed with Ninja Psylocke. And that's why the only solution in the modern age is to let the actual Japanese woman whose body that is be Ninja Psylocke and wear that outfit because fans want that character. And fans who came in in the 90s, which is when the comics were at their most popular, never knew Psylocke before she was a Japanese ninja. So it's just, that's that's just a complicated, long, long story. And, and this is not a Betsy Braddock episode, although pretty much everyone secretly is. Okay, well then, uh, to be a downer, I can go uh, talk about the... Um how problematic it was in that story you were describing. Because I'd actually never heard of that best uh, friend story of basically bringing back Amal Farouk to make him kind of like a a pawn or instrument of Hitler. Of the Nazis? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, to create, to have a character who's so like 
just Arab and Muslim in manner and dress mm-hmm. basically be like the front of the Nazis somehow. Yeah. Because that's like a, that's a pretty common trope to kind of be like, you know, Muslims work for the Nazis. Particularly something that is litigated over and over again in discussions of Israel-Palestine. Correct. Yes. So. So, to, so like, you know, kind of put it out there like Farouk. Because in no other storyline that I'm aware of is he ever working for anyone. A political, yeah, national. He like work. He's a cosmic entity. Like, why would he get about it? I will say, to be fair, like he's very clear on the fact that he's not a Nazi. He's using Hitler as a pawn himself. It's just, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot. It's just like he's encouraging Hitler because Hitler is fomenting hatred and fear across the world, and that empowers the Shadow King. But like. You know, there's the question that that poses to me is like, what other governments has Amal Farouk? What other states that have done terrible things like, oh, I don't know, America, for example. I think that's what the Jacob Rice character is supposed to do. Like when he is in charge of the FBI throughout Muir Island Saga, the idea is like the Shadow King is in every government. Like the Shadow King is always manipulating the systems of power. But it's a little different when like Amal Farouk in the Fez shows up working for Hitler. I agree with you. I think it's, right. I think yeah. it's, it's too much. Yeah. Weird story. He's working for like Baron von Strucker. He's disguised himself sort of as like a minion. Like he's just some crime lord. They don't know that he's the Shadow King. Like, the reason that they get the upper hand, the X-Men characters do, is because Kitty goes, oh my god, it's the Shadow King, and that makes Farouk go, excuse me? Like, what? <laughs> like, no one's supposed to know that. That's another Phoenix versus Shadow King story, right. because Rachel is Rachel, yeah, Phoenix it's, 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 in yeah. that story. So the craziest thing is, like, then they get saved by Wolverine, because he was alive in that period. Like, it's not the Wolverine they know. It's, like, the Wolverine of the 30s, except he already has his claws which doesn't track with the Weapon X hmm. stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I mean, they're already like adamantium as opposed to... Right, that's... that's you know, yeah, that's... Um... Here's the thing about X-Men True Friends. You can't really read it anywhere. I have the single issues because I was like, I gotta reread this, but it's not uh, it's not super well collected. So I would say like... So it is kind of funny that they had a story about Rachel and Kitty and called it True Friends. Well... <laughs> roommates i mean notably in this week's extreme x-men number one there is a big splash page of rachel with phoenix wings hovering in the air clutching kitty to her bosom and the narration describes her as kitty's best friend right and they are in their shared apartment in chicago where they live together uh, <laughs> it's just very like part of you know, he's not subtle. He's said that, like, the reason Kitty's children in X-Men The End are redheads is because President Pride's first lady is supposed to be Rachel Summers. But it's just never, it was just never on the page. I think now that Rachel's, like, gay, because Tina right. Howard got that football into the end zone. Long struggle. Yeah, I mean, I, that makes me wonder if maybe we'll eventually get something a little more concrete there. But what the funniest thing about True Friends is, like, speaking of, like, Kitty's girlfriends, or exes, or whatever you want to call them, is that if you go to Claremont's papers in Columbia, this is one of the ones I saw, like, someone took a picture of, he mapped out the outline for True Friends, like, time travel story, like, Kitty goes back in time to yada, 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 in the mid-80s as a story for Kitty and Ilyana. 
Wow. So you're making me regret my time at my alma mater now. So I'm. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Because you didn't go check out Chris Claremont's. Yeah, papers. I didn't see Claremont's papers. I yeah. mean, how much time I spent in that library? Low. Yeah. I don't think they would have been there back then. I think it's like a more recent acquisition, if that makes you feel any better. Wow. Now you, now not you to, made me feel old. Not to, not, to, <laughs> not to make you feel old. But anyway, then there's the Extreme X-Men annual where Claremont brings back Lian Shen, which is wild. Uh, like, she hasn't been seen since he left the books. She's the Shadow Queen now, and, like, she's, you know, a host or whatever. But Rogue and Betsy have this, like, weird spiritual connection after Betsy's death. So do Bishop and Betsy. It's just, like, all kind of, again, it's, like, his plans that never happened. But the Shadow King is therefore able to, like, manipulate Rogue, and uh, he lies to her and pretends that Destiny was his host for all those years that he went from Farouk to destiny. He says, what if it was all a lie? Everything you believe about yourself, rogue, everything you think, you know, they're looking for destiny's diaries at this point. How many times have you wondered what transformed mystique into a ruthless terrorist whose voice whispered horror in her ear night after night after night, who used the love that was the single constant of a shapeshifter's life as the key to her damnation. As I shaped her, so I shaped you. And we see destiny as the shadow King, but this is all made up. But it's just a fun, it's a fun what if. And it, again, like the connection between Destiny and Legion, all of that stuff. It's like, it, there's just, there's interesting stuff here. Lian Shen, the Shadow Queen, and the Reavers are here, like, dispatched to attack Gateway and his tribe. And, like, it, it, this is where Gateway gives the Extreme X-Men one of Destiny's diaries. Go back to go back to the, the Gateway episode. The, the Extreme X-Men <laughs> of it all. I just got the omnibus, so I'm going to dig into all of this again, like, because I, I do... Well, I mean, first of all, I got to do Lifeguard and Slipstream and Neil Shara at some point, but I'm also just interested to pick apart now that Claremont's kind of back in it. I loved that absolutely crazy <laughs> Extreme X-Men number one that just came out, and I, I feel the need now to revisit. Anyway, point is, where the Shadow King actually, for reals, shows up again is in New Excalibur, which is the book Claremont is writing after the decimation, after House of M. Here, we don't know initially that we're reading about the Shadow King because we're reading about the Shadow X, the O5 X-Men from an evil alternate reality. They wear bondage gear and kill people and are super scary. They are led by Shadow Xavier, who... It turns out, surprise, surprise, is a version of Xavier possessed by the Shadow King. But in this period, Claremont also stresses, like right before New Excalibur, he's writing Uncanny Reload. And in the White Hot Room, when Betsy and Rachel, because Betsy's been brought back to life at this point, Betsy and Rachel are talking in the White Hot Room and Rachel explains she is unique. She's a multiversal anomaly. There's only one of her. And that's implied to be because she is the daughter of the phoenix force itself and the phoenix force the phoenix itself is an omniversal constant similarly this plot in new excalibur implies that there's only one shadow king which is an interesting notion again it positions him as the opposite number to the phoenix the hate to the phoenix's love but also asks a lot of questions because then you have stuff like that cross time caper story with that version of the shadow king was that the same shadow king i guess it was it's like not super 100 clear that's also a question with farouk himself because if they're two separate entities 
why would Farouk then be not multiversal while the Shadow King would be, in a sense? Well, but I mean, I guess in the same way that Jean Grey of Earth 616 is a different person from Jean Grey of alternate Earths. Interesting. You know, like it's different from, I mean, I have my own theories about the Phoenix and its connection to Jean that I've enumerated on the podcast before, but the Phoenix itself has inhabited different genes on different Earths, but it's always the same Phoenix. And I guess that's what's going on here is the implication. Anyway, point is Shadow Xavier dies. (laughs) <laughs> don't worry too much about it to be quite honest betsy has a confrontation with him before that though because she doesn't know it's the shadow king and she goes to talk to like this evil alternate xavier in uh, in prison and he explains like i was freed when vargas killed you and etc cetera, etc cetera. and because of house of m and the realities shifting and warping i got shunted into this alternate reality where i found a charles that i could defeat and then corrupted his students and yada 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 now i'm back baby because i want revenge because this timeline i fucking hate you guys (laughs) she's about to kill him when she gets yoinked away in a flash of light because claremont is taking over exiles and he's sending her to exiles so it ends up being Kelsey Lee, Lionheart, the Chuck Austin, Captain Britain, do not worry about it, who uh, who kills Shadow Xavier. The Shadow X stuff is kind of funny. Like, uh, you know, New Excalibur is a weird, weird, weird book, but there's stuff in it that's kind of fun. About two years later, Christopher Yost writes a miniseries called X-Men Worlds Apart. It's a storm story. Storm is now married to Black Panther. She's the queen of Wakanda. She's feeling torn between two worlds, her life as a member of the X-Men and her life as the queen of Wakanda. There is a murder, and it is pinned on Nejno Abademi, the X-Men's former student, Gentle, who was one of Aurora's students specifically. He's a Wakandan mutant. Aurora is like, there's no way, he's innocent. And it turns out that the Shadow King is here and has possessed T'Challa. And, oh no, what are you going to do? Are you going to save your husband, the man you love? And so evil Shadow King T'Challa frames Storm as a traitor, etc. She ends up communing with Bast, the panther god of Wakanda, to defeat the Shadow King. I mean, he's kind of taking, I mean, he takes this kind of almost like a Mephisto-esque mm-hmm. spot in a lot of stories. Like, it's like, like, if you can't get Mephisto, you kind of get the, like, wish version of Mephisto, Shadow King. Especially in Storm stories. Like, it's very, this is yeah. very like the Joe Kelly and Nancy story in Cywar. It just feels very that. Uh, and, you know, it, it doesn't super matter but the resolution for storm is that she realizes like she can have it all like she can be the queen of wakanda and Shaw's wife and an x-man so fuck you shadow king opens up a cosmo does the quiz yeah exactly <laughs> it's a couple years after that that he recurs throughout rick remender's uncanny x-force which is a book that features ninja betsy as a pretty major character She is working with Warren because the Archangel personality is now like a split personality in his head that he's unable to control. She's trying to help him control it with psychic therapy. This is the utopia era. The Shadow King is back and causing a lot 
of trouble. They battle on the astral plane, obviously, and when she confronts him there, it is again Amal Farouk, visually, with like a harem of women in that way that is very tropey and that like the cross time caper also did like there's like a belly dancer in front of him like doing yeah anything. yeah I, I can it's like i can see it it's like a, the <laughs> job of the hut kind of cantina exactly and he says finally good evening to you elizabeth your mind's become such a muddy splintered place i feared you weren't astute enough to follow the crumbs i left I became quite familiar with your stench during the many years I imprisoned you within my muddy, splintered mind, Amal. And she calls him Amal and Farouk. So Remender's conception of the character is definitely that it's not a host, like Farouk is the guy. I can understand that. You yeah, know, I mean, again, this is really fucking confusing. And like, you know, Rick Remender is not my cup of tea most of the time, but this is one I'll give him because it took me a week of digging through stuff to try and figure out any of how all of that works. So the Shadow King gets into Warren's head and Betsy has like locked Archangel away in like a lockbox in his mind palace and the Shadow King lets Archangel out, which is, you know, not great. I mean, I'm, I'm a big Archangel fan. I love that design. It's a cool design. I'm glad that it's now a form that Warren can control. Yeah, me too. I found this split personality era to be exhausting and the Dark Angel saga just does not super do it for me. I do love the sequence right before Betsy kills him where she gives him like a fake life of happiness with her telepathically. It's a great scene. I would say apart from Cywar, the only Ninja Betsy story that I really like is that one issue of Uncanny Switch. I also act, I do like an apocalypse solution when she won't let them kill the child. That's a good bit. But overall, Remender's Betsy is not my favorite. I do like Cy Spurrier's Ninja Betsy. Doesn't Archangel, like, uh, decapitate Farouk? Oh, sure does. Yeah. Like, on the <laughs> on the. I mean, he decapitates a lot of people. Like, Archangel's plane. like... Yeah. Yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, No, you know. That's like his thing. <laughs> Eventually, the Shadow King comes back again and traps Betsy in, like, an illusion prison or whatever and phantom x who is her love interest by this point has to uh sacrifice himself so that she can escape this is when dokken's brotherhood is attacking the headquarters and they kill gateway and as gateway's dying as we talked about in the gateway episode a couple weeks ago betsy sees no choice and is like very apologetic but she invades his mind and activates his power to send them all away the portal sends them to a dystopian future where magistrate braddock is like the ruler with an iron fist and betsy's really horrified by it and tries to kill herself it doesn't work she's stopped by a future version of the punisher and she and Magistrate Braddock have a conversation and Betsy is just really distressed about all of it. But then it's time to go back in time because the Evan Sovener apocalypse clone plot is happening again. The Shadow King is trying to corrupt this little baby apocalypse. Betsy ends up locking the Shadow King in the comatose body of Omega White, a clone of Omega Red, who you truly do not need to worry about. And she gives the Shadow King vegetable body to Brian, her brother, and is like, you know, put this somewhere safe. A couple years go by. Chris Claremont is writing the Nightcrawler solo in 2015. 
turns out that Brian, I guess, had buried the comatose Shadow King under the Gobi Desert. Uh, wow. <laughs> for some reason. Quick thinking. Yeah. Brian has big himbo energy. Nobody accused yeah, him I mean, having great ideas. Sure. You know, I mean, they, they like put the Shadow King in suspended animation in like some tomb or whatever. Chris messes this up and it's now the body of Omega Black instead of Omega White, who was one of the other Omega Red clones. But guess what? Doesn't fucking matter. So who cares? Maybe if you like leave Omega White lying around too long, he turns into an Omega Black. And then the Crimson Pirates arrive and Bloody Bess accidentally releases the Shadow King from this tomb. Who is Bloody Bess? Bloody Bess has come up on this podcast before. I think Valentine and I broke it down in the Sage episode, which is called Tessa. Bloody Bess is maybe an alternate version of Betsy from another reality, but she's a platinum blonde space pirate who was introduced in Claremont's revolution period as part of the Crimson Pirates who were slave traders working for Tullamore Vosges, whose slaves are hounds with the hound outfit, which again, I like, I think was Claremont not being able to use the Shadow King. Similarly, in Extreme, the secret evil telepath who appears only as a shadowy figure who is the secret power behind the hellfire club is this new character elias bogan who is very clearly i think supposed to be the shadow king but chris can't use the shadow king because of cywar so it's like okay Vosges and bogan are both stand-ins like Vosges is also like a big fat guy who is a slaver like they just feel very obviously serial numbers filed off to me. But anyway, Bloody Bess is from that story with Telemore Vos. She eventually betrays him. After the Shadow King's been freed, Bess contacts Nightcrawler. She ends up teaming up with Betsy, and they're both on the astral plane using psychic knives, which is kind of cool. Kurt's like, they're very similar. That's interesting. Like <laughs> He like mistakes <laughs> Bess for Betsy at one point, and I'm like, okay, Chris, we get it. In any case, they manage to bring Kurt with them to the astral plane and give him Betsy's like psi sword and he uses it to smack the Shadow King around and they push him back into the body of Omega Black and like put him back in his little crypt. So that's the end of that. Then in 2017, during the Inhumans vs. X-Men period, Charles Soule writes Astonishing X-Men. This is a book mostly about Magneto and Betsy. We find out that the Shadow King is once again imprisoned on the astral plane, and he, as always, is like, what if I fuck with Betsy to, like, find my way back out? You think you'd want to fuck with the person who didn't have psychic knives. And who doesn't always kill you and send you back yeah. to the astral plane. But, like, you know, whatever, I guess. But Betsy actually does fall for it and is going to release him. She becomes a, um, like, there's this crazy sequence where she becomes like a gigantic psychic butterfly it's like mothra like fighting mothra Godzilla. Like, thing, right? yeah, yeah. It's, it's really it's kind of neat he uses her to try and manipulate other psychics but the astonishing x-men are able to put a stop to it betsy uses her powers to send them all spiritually to the astral plane so that they can fight the shadow king and it turns out that he has a prisoner of his own on the astral plane the spirit of charles xavier who did survive having his physical body destroyed to become an astral ghost on the astral plane just like amal farouk maybe did 
maybe. Uh, (laughs) You know, they all get put in nightmares by the Shadow King. Eventually, Professor X is able to resurrect himself by taking over Phantom X's body. And he and Betsy create a mutant circuit, basically, that completely obliterates the Shadow King from existence, apparently. Like, he's just gone. That said, Charles is like, I'm not so sure. Because every time we've destroyed the Shadow King in the past, he's come back. And he was in my head this time. And I'm really powerful. So I don't know about all of this. I also don't really want anyone to know that I'm alive again, and I don't look like myself, so I can just kind of be sneaking around right now. So he erases everyone's memories, classic Charles, except he lets Betsy remember the whole adventure because he's like, if the Shadow King is alive in the back of my brain, I need you to be able to kill me. And I know you'll do it. (laughs) (laughs) And they kind of leave it at that. Showing some evolution of Charles, at least. Yeah. He's learning. Exactly. And so that plot ends in 2018, which leads us to the 2019 software that has the Powers of Ten by Jonathan Hickman. Before that, actually, Vita Ayala uses Farouk in Prisoner X, their Age of X-Men miniseries, but that's an alternate universe, so we don't have to worry about that. I'm just saying, clearly, Ayala has been interested in the Shadow King for a while because they do a Shadow King plot before they get brought on to write New Mutants in 2021. In 2020, about a year into the Krakoan age, we see Farouk with his Shadow King spider legs as one of the Krakoan telepaths summoned to Genosha as backup during Empire X-Men, which made everyone go, wait, what? The Shadow King is on Krakoa? Because that's crazy. (laughs) And then that leads into the following year, New Mutants, where in Ayala's first issue, the story opens with what is finally a definitive origin story of the Shadow King. Egypt Ayalet, the 16th century. So this is Egypt under Ottoman rule. We cut to a bazaar. There was once a merchant who was wise and fair and beloved by his community. The merchant had a son, his only family, for his wife had died when the child was very young and he had never remarried. The boy was kind and loved his father deeply. All the boy wanted was to grow up to be like his father. The market was a busy and lively place. Such places often attract predators. In many corners they go unchecked, too quick or dangerous to confront. But this market had something special. The merchant's son had a gift. The little boy's eyes glow purple. And the thief who just stole a woman's purse gives it back. Because even as a child, Farouk is a telepath. A gift he used to protect those around him. The merchant was the proudest man in the city, for his son was loving and kind and would one day grow up to be greater than himself. He could not wait to see it. It was not to be. Plague came to their market and darkness fell onto their house and the boy was left alone. And no matter how hard he wished, how he tried, the boy's gift could not save his father. With the plague came bigger predators. There's a face now in the shadows with terrible teeth. Predators with sweet promises of adventure. And never being alone again. With his father dead and the market gone, the boy had nothing to tether him to the city. And so it was that Amal Farouk came to know the Shadow King. This scene blew me away when I read it. Rod Race draws the whole sequence beautifully, and I was just like, oh, okay, we're fucking 
doing this thing. It makes the story interesting because you don't really know where it's going to go. Like you don't like obviously the Shadow King is always you assume, you know, has nefarious plans and deeds. But with this, it um, instead of having an obvious ending, it, it le- leads you to go, well, maybe how is this going to end up? Like what what is the reality of uh, Farouk's uh, and, you know, identity? Like where does he end and the Shadow King begin? Are they still separate? And how complicit is this child that we see here in the things that we've watched his body do? Not 100% clear. And that is what the story becomes about unpacking. The Lost Club, the children who feel isolated because of their visible mutations or other things about their physicality, feel alienated from Krakoa, end up influenced by Mr. Farouk, who tells them stories around a campfire and seems like a nice man now. But, you know, something very ominous is clearly happening. We, the readers, get to see that, you know, the teeth are still there and like all of that. Uh, In the following issue, there's an incredible data page called The Journals of Amal Farouk. It's several different entries over the course of a long time, right? I mean, if we are to understand that Farouk was first possessed by the Shadow King in the 1600s, that means that he hosted the Shadow King and lived as an immortal for hundreds of years before we ever met him in Uncanny 117. So this is a long period of time. The Shadow tells me that he can teach me to fully control my gifts so that I might be able to help people. In exchange, I allow him to ride my soul so that he can experience the world, so that he might know it. He watches as I eat and drink, as I play in the sun. He says it gives him joy. He tells me that there are a million worlds like ours, each more strange and wonderful, that there are infinite possibilities all lined up next to each other just out of reach, and that he will take me there when I am ready. I wish my father could see them too. The next entry. The shadow asks me to use my gifts more each day, and each day I feel stronger. He tells me we are alike, that our gifts complement each other's. He, a traveler of worlds, and me, a traveler of minds. With him, I will see things others could never imagine. With him, I will never be alone. I know that Father would be proud of how much I am learning, of the good I will do when I am strong enough. Sometimes I wake up in places that I do not remember going. The shadow says we are growing. He asks me to use my gifts to compel others to behave as they should. He says that if we keep people from doing wrong, it is better than punishing them for a mistake we could have prevented. We are our brother's keepers. We must use our gifts to shepherd him. I think my father would understand. I wish I could hear his voice now telling me he loves me. Joy follows us wherever we go. Men clap me on the back and tell me they admire my prowess, and women swoon and give me their gifts. The people love us. We protect them from themselves, and they bring us tribute. We are always together now. I am never alone. My mind is a haze the more he rides my soul, the less real things feel. I cannot remember the face of my father, it is my only regret. But the shadow assures me that he is smiling, and that when I meet him again on the other side, he will hold me close and tell me he's proud. Our power grows, and with it we will shape and rule this world from the shadows. We will be king. So over the course of a hundred years here, you see the Shadow King completely poison Farouk's mind to the point where by the end of it, there's only we. It's not me and the Shadow anymore. It's us. And I think that this threads the needle really nicely because it doesn't make sense if Farouk was just a host that the Shadow King would refer to himself as Farouk and use Farouk's form on the astral plane going forward. 
unless there's something deeper, unless they were connected for so long that even they can't really tell where one ends and the other begins, you know? Right. Yeah. There's definitely, it's not, yeah, it's not strictly like a parasitic relationship. It's symbiotic. It's like venom, you know, like they are together forever. Right. This is an interesting bit because in this story, Ayala is also paying a lot of attention to karma in a way that no creator, but Claremont and Marjorie Lou and Zeb Wells ever really had before. She's a character who I think, I mean, go back to the karma episode. Sarah Sentry and I will lay it all out. But the thing about karma that's established in her very first story that then doesn't really come up again very often until this Ayala story, uh, although Matt Rosenberg did stuff with it in New Mutants Dead Souls, karma kills her twin brother who's evil and absorbs right. his soul into her own and they merge together as the yin-yang that's like her insignia. She's also like this and this story sets up the dyad of karma and the shadow king as parallel characters in a way that harkens back to his time possessing her but gives her more agency over the story and just makes more sense like it's not just that they both possess people it's also that karma and farouk are both hosts to a malevolent psychic entity that has merged with their soul. But while Karma has mostly been able to keep that under control, Farouk gave himself up to the shadow, in part because he was a little child and didn't know any better. It helps us develop sympathy for him because there but for the grace of God goes Karma, who's a character we love, right? But she was, you know, 17, 18 when she merged with her brother and she was able to maintain her sense of self. It's really smart. This Vida Ayala run is so, so good. Farouk continues to manipulate the Lost Club and then starts manipulating Wolfsbane, who's traumatized because her son Tyr can't be resurrected for some reason and it's freaking her out. Farouk appeals to her. Karma doesn't trust it. She tries to tell Rain, like, you can't trust him all Farouk. And Rain is like, fuck you, basically. I can do what I want. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, I mean, there's also there's also interesting use of Farouk in that um, he's not directly controlling people. No, he's just giving them... I mean, with Rain, he starts to. Yeah. But initially, he's just telling the kids what they should do. And they do it. Right. Yeah, exactly. So I, I, kind, I kind of like the aspect of, you know, it doesn't have to, you know, in a place that's all about the powers, he's not like leaning on the powers. Right. And when the powers do come into play, it's pretty, uh, it, they're used pretty dramatically. Well, and he gives, he does something that the Shadow King wouldn't do, which is that he teaches Martha Johansson to body hop with a mutant circuit that he does with her. Right. He does teach these kids for nefarious purposes, but like he does in a way that the Shadow King doesn't share. You know, that to me is a hint again that like something more is going on here. Little Gabby, who is one of the Lost Club and is the only one who doesn't trust the Shadow King, confronts him during the Hellfire Gala. And we get a sequence of the New Mutants having a lovely time at the Gala while intercut. Farouk talks to little Gabby and narrates. And I know I'm reading a lot here, but Hala's Farouk dialogue is so good. And for a character who has never really been 
like outside of that scene with Leon Shen in his throne room, he doesn't get to narrate. You know what I mean? And so like having him narrate, there's just so much careful effort made here to put this character in a subjective rather than objective position. And I think that that's really cool. So Warlock is reconciling with Doug and his new wife, Bay the Blood Moon, because he's felt awkward in like a third wheel. And this is the scene where Doug and Bay are like, no, we love you, Warlock. Come, you know, hang with us. And it's a very heartwarming, cute little scene. But over it is this narration. I never had the opportunity to make friends when I was your age. By the time I was 10, my father, along with hundreds of my neighbors, had been taken by a plague. I wasn't alone, however. I had him. And for a long time, I thought that what we had together was good. Because of him, I was never alone, cheered wherever we went, weeping with joy. But it wasn't real. I know that now. The loyalty and care you have for your friends is admirable, child. When I came to Krakoa, it was the first time in centuries that I felt free. He's still there, little pieces of him, but something about this place keeps him dormant. I can think, feel for myself. It's as if I'm breathing for the first time. For the first time since I was a child, people smiled at me, and it was their choice. Your friends, they came to me because they were curious, and they trusted that they were safe. It felt good. And we see little Gabby crying, tears streaming down her face. These children, they are lost, like I was. Krakoa promises safety, but nothing lasts forever. There will come a time when we will have to face the world again. When that time comes, they will need be ruthless, as I was. I, better than most, know what lurks in the darkness, and I will not let them become prey. I will not have you poisoning them against me before I can teach them what they will need to know. Goodbye, Gabrielle Kinney. When the issue ends, the Lost Club are looking for little Gabby and find her mangled corpse in the foliage. It's a pretty shocking. <laughs> I mean, I yeah, saw, pretty shocking. Yeah. I, by the time we got to the panel, I I knew it was coming. It's gruesome and it's like straight up child murder. And at this stage in the story, our understanding is that little Gabby, because she's a clone, is not eligible for resurrection. So it was a right. pretty dramatic twist. That monologue is so good. It's what you pointed out. He doesn't possess people really in this story. He does fuck with Rain's mind at one point telepathically, like he puts a whammy on her. He doesn't Shadow King possess anyone because the Shadow King's gone. Betsy and Charles destroyed the Shadow King. Probably. <laughs> Until right. someone has a story. You know what I mean? Charles is suspicious, but he ain't going to be poking in any dark corners. Right. <laughs> This is just Amal Farouk right. for the first time presented to the reader as a character with agency of his own. Looking back now, you start to think about just how perverse characters like Leon Shen become when they are possessed by the shadow. Like, they're not themselves. So we don't really know Amal Farouk, and this could have gone any number of different directions. What I think Ayala does that's so smart is they keep a consistency of character by having the behavior feel familiar and then give us an explanation that makes a ton of sense. So in issue 22, the older New Mutants, who are the teachers now, like the adult New Mutants, Karma and Magic and Warpath and Mirage and Wolfsbane, are dragged into the Shadow King's astral mind space. He takes them to his little 
it's like one of those harem rooms, but there's no harem girls this time. And he says, please sit so we may see eye to eye. Danny says, you wanted to talk, so talk. Actually, it was you who wanted to speak to me, Ms. Moonstar. You came to me in my cave in the Wild Hunt, demanding to know what my intentions were towards some of your youth. I offered, if you were amenable, to show you. All we've seen here is death and destruction. You sort of us tears if we'll stand by for that. You must understand, my dear Wolfsbane, I haven't shown you what I want. I have shown you what will be if we continue on this course. My intentions, however, are salvation. And this is another great monologue. It's a big Rod Rice splash. And this is the biggest Farouk's ever been drawn physically. Like, his size is enormous in these stories, but it doesn't feel... Grotesque. Yeah, he just looks like a fat guy. Yeah. Which I think is part of why this really works, because he looks at them and he starts explaining himself, like, very directly. He says, In my time in this world, there has been only one constant. Nothing lasts forever. As the oceans wear away mountains, time wears away empires, turning them to dust, forgotten by history. Xavier and Magneto feel safe in their belief that they have discovered the secret to an indestructible nation, but they are horribly, narcissistically, foolishly wrong. Krakoa, like Constantinople, will fall, and mutants will have become too soft to survive it. So you torture us with our worst fears because we came to stop you from hurting and brainwashing our children? Disgusting. Sean turns to her and says... We got it wrong, Danny. These aren't our worst fears. Karma, what? They're his. Hear my words and understand, you foolish children, that they are a warning. Apocalypse knew the truth of what it takes to endure, but he was weak. He only cared for his kind long enough to get what he wanted. Then he abandoned us, because this is after Ten of Swords. But I will not give in so easily. I will remind mutant kind of these harsh truths. And we get a data page called Rebellion of the Host. The boy slumbers, his dreams sweet and gentle to keep him docile, dormant, but sometimes, sometimes he stirs. There is a child, a creature like the boy, but different, stronger. Desire for their power rises like a tide in the shadow, but something rises in them like a wave of white noise. When it clears, the child is gone. The boy's dreams have turned turbulent, but still he slumbers. Sometimes he thinks he is awake, but the horror of what he has become is so deep that he is sure he must be dreaming. The girl picks the right pocket, another one like them, a mutant as they call themselves now. The shadow is pleased, reels the man into his web like a greedy spider. The man is powerful, but nothing compared to the combined might of the boy and the shadow. But as they battle once again, the shadow is set upon by a muzzy wave of nothingness. The shadow fights it, retains most of his control, but the man manages to use the distraction to claim victory for now. There is a girl nearby now, and she is frightened and desperately sad. The boy comforts her as well as he can, but her presence is muddled, as if they are on opposite sides of thick glass. When the girl's friends come for her, the boy thinks she would be happier if they took her away. The boy strains to wave long enough to... The shadow sees it coming this time and snatches the boy up, dragging him to the center of things. The market is in ruins, and the sky closes in on the boy, raining down terror. The boy does not sleep now, but neither is he free. The bit I love here is the implication that Charles defeated Farouk in Egypt, not because Charles defeated the Shadow King, but because Farouk rebelled against the Shadow King in that moment and gave Charles the opportunity. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting because, right, it, re, it reframes that uh, initial encounter. And it also gives us that idea of, you know, who exactly, you know, is before us. It's very clear that the child's not always aware when he's under 
Exactly. But now he is. After the death of Gabby, the child is awake. And the shadow has locked him away, but he's seeing everything. And that is different now, right? It's almost like Krakoa has woken him up, which he sort of implied earlier. But he's still carrying out these terrible things that the Shadow King would have him do. So is the Shadow King here? What's going on? We cut back to the solarium that he has them all in. And Danny says, We've never known anything except desperate survival. We deserve more. Coming together has given us the chance at a future. We're stronger together than any other force I've ever encountered. What you're doing is harming that. You see that, don't you? You're hurting children because you fear a future you haven't actually seen. How quickly you have forgotten all the lessons you have been taught. Without need for rest, the machines will hunt us to extinction. The humans will never leave us in peace. In this universe, there are only predators or prey. It is the way of things. And the quiet council is turning up people who should be apex predators into willing sacrificial lambs. They would have us soften ourselves with the teeth and claws of our enemies. The Iraqi knew this. They have survived millennia of besiegement by accepting their true selves. If we are to survive, we must do the same. And then it cuts, there's a panel there that's just karma narrowing her eyes as though she's starting to understand what's going on. He continues to basically tell them like, I will teach you how to survive. And he traps them in more nightmares and it just keeps going and going and going. And they like die in their dreams a million times. And this issue is fucking awesome. This is uh, issue 22. The following issue is the close of this story. The Lost Club end up finding Farouk in his cave and like the adult teachers all unconscious. That's the splash page that ends issue 22. And then in 23, they break into the astral plane to try to rescue their teachers. One thing I really like about this um, story, all the I mean, my favorite part is the Lost Club stuff. Uh, that's kind of really the meat of the story for me, for sure. And uh, it really reminds me of... Uh, like several different Stephen King stories, actually. It's it very it, right? Like <laughs> yeah. in particular. Very yeah. it. Very, very it. There's a lot of it in here. And there's a little bit of, um, you know, the body, like Stand By Me. Mm-hmm. Where the kids, like, come together and go on a journey. And, like, you know, they find their true selves and, and all this stuff. Uh, it's, uh, it's like, uh, it's great usage of not just the character, but also of the young mutants in this kind of new you know, all mutant environment, uh, you know, like we're seeing young mutants in an environment where they have to overcome challenges that aren't put upon them by human society, but by other mutants. Uh, and it's, you know, very unique story. I, I don't think there's anything else like it, really. I think that this arc from like 14 to 23 is pound for pound one of the absolute strongest runs in the Krakoa era. What ends up happening is Danny and Ilyana and Cosmar, the Lost Club member, start linking up mentally and then all of the New Mutants in the Lost Club link up mentally and they do a circuit that they call Astral Fusion and manifest as this gestalt angel that's just incredible to look upon. And they find a shadowy cube prison in the astral space. These issues are so beautiful also, just like Robbery just fucking kills this so hard. It's Cairo in black and white, destroyed and devastated in this cube prison. The little boy Amal Farouk says, oh, you came back. No one ever comes back. Rain is there with him now in her dog form and gives him a lick. They've been tracking Rain, who got dragged away. <laughs> that tickles. They, they're beautiful as the angel comes down. 
they all charge in and little Gabby says, he's just a kid. And Anul says, you can't kill him because Ilyana and Warpath are Mirage are all ready to go. And Warpath goes, what are you all doing? And the Lost Club are surrounding them to stop them. And Anul says, you heard Cosmar and Nogar, this place is a prison, but it's not for us. It's too old, too intricate. Who else could it be for if it isn't for him? Then there's a great bit where the child starts laughing and laughing and blood starts pouring out of his eyes and mouth. The children understand what I do, and they will inherit the earth long after your weak bones are dust. <laughs> and turns into a giant Shadow King monster, and they fight, 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 and they fight, 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 and they fight, 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 fight. It just turns into more fighting forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And the kids start shouting like, he's still a little boy in there. We can feel it. We know you can too. We have to save him. You're always telling us that things aren't black and white. That part of being a community means trying to understand each other. He's done things that are vile. We know that. But we can't pretend that Amal Farouk is just evil. We can't pretend that we didn't see the kid. He's as trapped in this horror as we are. Ilyana says... What if they're right? When we first arrived, there was a child. We all felt his awe and fear before he changed. We know that Amal Farouk was taken by the Shadow King. Maybe he is still in here. And Ilyana, of course, was taken by Belasco as a child. So, like, she's, you know, reflecting here. Warpath says, the Shadow King is a master manipulator. He knows our weaknesses. And then Karma says, after what he did to me, no one hates him more than I do. But I also wonder. And Danny says... The Shadow King entity was destroyed ages ago. It's Amal doing this. But Karma gets it now. And we close in on her. And she says, A hundred years ago, circuses were able to contain huge elephants with just a small rope around their ankles. When they were babies, they were chained with the strongest metal. They learned they couldn't escape. When they grew, the metal was replaced with rope. But they had lost all hope. And that stuns Ilyana into silence. And that's when they all decide that they have to do something different. And they all combine their powers and they save the child. It's a really beautiful moment. The power of friendship. There's an incredible splash page. It's a double page splash. You know what? You want to read it with me? <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. I'm sending it yeah. in the chat. I'm putting it in the chat. I'm putting it in the chat. I want you to participate. You're so quiet. Okay, that's say. I was like, oh, let me dig up my comments. I have a screen cap. I'm putting it in the chat. I'll be the Shadow King. You be the boy. Except they're both Farouk, is what we now yes. understand. He's acting out what he believes is what he's supposed to be, but this child has still been locked inside him all this time. You were a fool to reach out to them, child. They have come, and they will kill you, and I will once again have proper mastery of this body. It's not true. The new moons have come to destroy the Shadow King, not Amal Farouk. The Shadow King is Amal Farouk, insect. No, you're afraid of their coming. I can feel it. I fear nothing, you worthless, weak little fool. You know they are coming for you, and that I will help them finally banish the last of you. And look, here they come now. And their swords will find you. I finally understand the truth, Shadow King. I'm finished hiding behind fear and pain. The truth is that I am the master of my own choices, not you, me. And this truth will finally free me of you. No! We're then put in Farouk's head, his subjective position as his eyes slowly open to see the new mutants. And Ilyana says, fall back, I got this. I can swing or you come peacefully with the soul sword. Karma says, what will it be, Farouk? And little Gabby says, I think, I think he's done fighting. I think we're going to be okay. 
Farouk collapses to the ground and says, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Crying and crying and crying. This is just, it's just really fucking good, guys. It's just really good. And this has been story time with Connor and Khaldun because like there's, you know, it's just, it's just so fucking good. Issue 24 is the wrap up and we get the paperwork that they file. Basically after action report, new mutants and shadow King location, astral plane outcome, permanent removal of the entity known as the shadow King from the mutant Amal Farouk. The Farouk was technically no longer possessed by the shadow King entity. It became clear that there was significant psychic scarring left behind. Farouk was able to assist the new mutants in freeing themselves from the loop and in turn free himself from the lingering influence. Our recommendation is for Farouk to undergo intensive rehabilitation before being allowed back into Krakoa proper. And Farouk has requested that once his treatment is complete, he be allowed to add his power to aid David Haller in his work. We second his request. They all show up to take Farouk to his therapy. Karma gets a moment where she says... I did not come to offer you absolution. I came because I want to see this chapter of our lives closed. And he says, I understand. As Wolfsbane said, I cannot earn your forgiveness. But what happened to you, what I helped do to you, was monstrous and vile. My deepest wish is that what I do now allows you to be free of whatever mark I helped inflict on you. And she says, I don't forgive you. But, as he walks through the gate, I hope that you get what you deserve. I hope that you find your second chance. And that's the end. That's as far as we've seen him to exist. There's a flashback to him in uh, the form of Jacob Rice in Chris Claremont's Gambit miniseries, but it's just part of this plot of Uncanny 267. Little Aurora embarrasses him and startles him, and it's just, he's not in most of it, but he, he, ha he gets a little cameo. Otherwise, that's the last we've seen in the present of Amal Farouk. I think this story is really powerful, I think it is a reclamation of the character in so many ways. As someone who used to be very big myself, seeing his largeness here not be disgusting throughout this arc was really powerful to me. Seeing Karma address her experience to him directly was really powerful to me. And the way that Egypt and Cairo are here reimagined as the beautiful landscape of his childhood before he was taken and abused into becoming a monster himself feels to me like it reclaims the Middle East and North Africa from the Oogie vibe that Amal Farouk has in the classic stories. It's saying this is a good place. The bad thing is the shadow descending on it, not the secret mystical horror of the Orient, you know? Right. Yeah. I mean, um, it, it, it moves him away. It, I mean, in some ways it brings him back to the or to his origins and then reimagines him in a very interesting way. So it takes him away from this like strictly boogeyman character. And I mean, the most interesting stories, at least to me, are, you know, the human stories. Like those stories that talk about us, you know, that affect us personally. Like it's why X-Men and, you know, Marvel comics in general, I feel have, you know, because they talk about these interpersonal relationships and the struggles that we all have, you know. That's why I loved, you know, Spider-Man as a kid as well. Uh, so when you when you bring Amal Farouk back to, you know, his humanity in a sense, then it makes for interesting stories, whether he's a hero or a villain. And right now we don't know, you know, which way that's going to go. But he has the choice. But he has the choice. 
And he's now a fat mutant, an Arab mutant, all of these things that he was representationally that were false in a sense, destructive. Yeah. Now they're things that could be positive if he became a positive character. That's true. Yeah. And I think that he's always going to be an ambiguous character if he's used again, because he's, you know, a classic villain. But I think that divorcing Farouk from the Shadow King was really smart because now the Shadow King could come back, the entity could come back and could be someone else, could be more like the one from the TV show, honestly, that people seem to really like and doesn't have to come with the baggage of being a fat hatred orientalist signifier. Yeah. Yeah, a bit of, yeah, a stereotype for sure. Like uh, several stereotypes. A bunch of them sort of piled on top of each other. Yeah. Yeah. And they were all, you know, and they're all kind of false in a sense because the character was hollow. Like he he was represented in this way, but because he was this, you know, you know, shadow puppeting a man, those weren't true aspects of him in in some sense. So, so now he gets to live those aspects. um, Yeah. Hopefully, you know, they can be represented at least in a, in a neutral or positive way, as opposed to being, you know, signifiers of being bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, I think it's very, um, it's a, it's a, yeah, it's a great story. I mean, uh, I, I think uh, sometimes great stories have to speak for themselves. <laughs> so I don't mind this, this, this story time with uh, Connor. I just know I'm going to get emails because the last time I did this was in the Conan episode where I was like, we got to just read it. We just got to read. I just got to read. I got to read this whole page. And you know what? You're just going to sit here and listen. I got like an email that's like, you did a lot of reading and your guests didn't talk very much. I'm like, well, sometimes if my guest is shy and doesn't talk very much, I end up reading more and then they get reengaged and then they start talking again, which is what's happening right now. Colin, do you have any more big picture thoughts on Farouk on the Shadow King before we get into the questions? We got some fun questions for this episode. Well, I mean, I guess uh, as far as big big picture is concerned, or um, I would really like for this character to you know be explored more in depth in in the future and to really engage in those like aspects of yeah, his culture and personality. I mean, we don't have many uh, like there are only a few of these kind of like long lived characters, and they often have um, very strange, almost esoteric backgrounds. Whether it's Celine or Apocalypse, they don't sure, have any yeah. like. Yeah, they don't have a lot of like real world grounding. So you have a character who's lived a long time and, you know, seemingly within, you know, a, a real world, you know, uh, place and environment like he wasn't like. Um... Yeah, I'd love to see how I mean, the apocalypse of it all is interesting because apocalypse, again, is ancient Egypt. And then Farouk is not modern Egypt, but like 2000 years later. Right. right. So there's a lot of interesting stuff there because it's like this region of the earth is like the cradle of civilization and we can see how that survival of the fittest kind of mentality evolved over time and these two people exist and then you know after Farouk you then have Sinister who's another apocalypse like I think that him talking to Sinister, him talking to Exodus, him talking to Celine, like these characters who are long lived, who've seen a lot of shit change, who've seen the technology rise. With Farouk in particular, I think there's the potential to do a story about 
accountability and like restorative justice. And I don't always mean to take it to a place of Angel the series, but like the idea that you got your soul back and now you have to deal with the fact that you were a demon who did all of these terrible things. And it's like, it wasn't me, but it also was you, you know? And that's kind of what he says to Karma there at the end. The things I helped him do to you, you know, the things that I participated in. And I think that that provides a lot of opportunity for story. He doesn't need to be redeemed because that's not possible. Right. No, I'd be happy for like some angel storylines, um, especially like that puppet episode. Sure. <laughs> that's a fun one. Uh, that's a good one. The only flaw is it's after Whedon wrote Cordelia out, but otherwise that episode's a lot of fun. I have very specific angel-related desires and needs, and they involve Charisma Carpenter, but, you know, what can you do? I think now's a good time to get into the questions. A lot of them, I think, are people just going, what the fuck is up with the Shadow King? And we've done our best to explain that, but it's <laughs> hard. This honestly would have been a good worrying about it episode for the Patreon, but uh, it is a character worth tackling. And I was excited to dig into what this character said to you as like a child and like how you relate to it now. And it's a great example of how ongoing stories can evolve because as a child, you read the story that has these flaws to it that were hurtful and now as an adult you can read the same characters interacting in a way that is more conscientious and respectful of people like you and I think that that's cool even in a, a circumstance this extreme as like it's Chris Claremont's ultimate bondage Satan but like <laughs> he's a person too we promise right. underneath yeah, exactly. it all right and as, as an adult I can you know appreciate the bondage Satan more for sure that I sure I mean it's not like those stories aren't fun it's just there's right. you know there's some optics that are not great Jack Hoda writes, hello, Connor, an esteemed guest. I'm a born and raised Mississippi gay, so feel free to give us an accent or just your rogue voice, sugar. After six months of heavy listening, I've officially finished every available episode of Cerebro. What a feat. As a kid, I was always obsessed with the X-Men thanks to 90s cartoon and especially X-Men Evolution, but I never found my way to the comics. Over the past few years, my interest in comics has grown immensely, but the overwhelming decision of where to start kept me away until Cerebro. This podcast has given me the courage to just jump in, and I'm loving every second. Thank you, Connor. You're welcome, Jack. So far, I've almost completely caught up on the Krakoan era, and I've started going back to read major events. So my only real experience with Farouk outside of the cartoons is Vita Isle's New Mutants and then the Shadow King from Age of Apocalypse. Based on my Patrick understanding of the Shadow King, my question is, are Amal Farouk and the Shadow King the same person? Or is the Shadow King an astral entity that possessed Farouk? His arc and Isle's New Mutants left me wondering this, and if by extension Farouk's a mutant at all, or just a human possessed by a powerful astral being that may be an alternate species mutant like Megan or Warlock? All of this may be answered in backstory that I just haven't read yet, but I think this relationship between the astral presence and the man we come to pity in Ayala's run is incredibly interesting. With love, Jack, they, them. You basically figured it out. This was, as we've now detailed yeah. for three hours, very unclear for like 30 <laughs> years. Ayala has definitively established what Claremont had implied in a few earlier stories, that they are separate beings, but Farouk is a mutant. He's a telepath, and that is why the Shadow King was drawn to him, just like the Shadow King is drawn to Charles, is drawn to Betsy, is drawn to these powerful minds that it can exploit, potentially. Exactly. Yeah, they have They have the—I mean, think of him as, like, kind of a psychic capitalist. Like, he's yes. looking for the most exploitable resources. He wants to control the means of production. So he sees those powerful, delicious brains— 
and he's got to have them. He's like, I could live in that. Yeah, I can't I can't do a southern accent, but I'll give you a Maryland y'all. There you go. I said this earlier, but what Ayala does that I think is so brilliant is establishing that the possession happened when Farouk was a child, because that means that the barrier between the two of them is much more porous and fragile than it is when Charles or Betsy or whoever get possessed by the Shadow King because they're a full adult person with their own mind who knows what they're doing. Even Karma, who was like 18, had enough of a sense of self that she was able to push him out. But right. an eight-year-old or whatever is not going to be able to do that. Right. And and that ties in with Karma's story about the elephant and the learned helplessness. Right. Like, even with, you know, in a sense, the Shadow King being, you know, gone or weak and definitely or not. Or dead or we don't know oh, exactly, but sure. like not in charge. Right. But but the, but the child. Farouk is still doing what he thinks the Shadow King would want him to do. Right. Because he doesn't believe that he, he's fully capable of breaking free till till the very end. Exactly. Yeah. And until they find the compartmentalized child in the back of his mind he doesn't even really understand that the Shadow King's will isn't his will. You know, it's really well done. Mike Layton writes, Hello, Connor and Calden Khalil. When it comes to ex-villains, I find the Shadow King to be interesting. I've always heard of the Shadow King in passing, usually as a psychic on par with Xavier and probably the most powerful psychic foe of the X-Men before, arguably Cassandra Nova. Yet despite his presence, he never seems to gain the same clout as villains like Apocalypse, The Brood, Mr. Sinister, The Phoenix, Sentinels, or other mainstays of the X-Baddies. Aside from his look, do you think there's a reason why? This is a classic Claremont villain. It's pretty surprising to think someone that was a big presence for Xavier and Karma isn't at least mentioned along alongside other big bads. Best wishes and have a wonderful and fantastic day, Mike. I think that the Muir Island saga was so confusing and was part of so much service behind the scenes that the other writers just didn't want to deal with the Shadow King. Right. The other writers, I mean, um, to, to continue uh, with what you were saying, Connor, the other writers probably felt, you know, verklempt uh, when having the deal <laughs> with uh, sure. the Shadow King. Yeah. They're just like, well... It takes you back to like, oh, remember when Chris and I argued about the Shadow King for like three weeks because we all told him that Muir Island Saga needed to be chopped by like 15 to 20 issues shorter than he wanted it to be. Like, you know, it's just, it, I think there were bad memories. And I also think the 90s stories were much more concerned with taking it back to the human versus mutant kind of basic X-Men tension. Bob Harris did away with almost all of the magical elements and other sci-fi elements and supernatural things that were not part of the X-Men premise. He's like, get rid of Mojo World, get rid of Limbo and all of that, keep them grounded. Like, you know, you can do Shi'ar stories and stuff because that's X-Men, but like, you know, get rid of Warlock. We want it to be about the mutant metaphor and that like specific thing. And the Shadow King is such a... It's kind of like, I mean, again, the comparison to Morrison here, I think, is really instructive. Sublime is not a character that anyone else was particularly interested in using, except Brian Wood in a story that I think is fucking terrible. And then in the present right now, Steve Orlando and Charlie Jane Anders are doing stuff with Sublime. But I think that's because at this point, we're far enough out from Morrison that commenting on Morrison becomes interesting and, and a thing to play with in a way that's fun. But Sublime also through the U-Men has a more grounded way of interacting with the mutant metaphor, whereas the Shadow King and his hounds, that's just like Chris Claremont's mystical Wiccan brain 
it is a primal Manichaean evil with like enslaved demon servant. It's just not, it, it doesn't fit as easily. And what I love most about the X-Men a lot of the time is that you can throw the X-Men into any kind of story and it's fun. And I like when we pull in stuff from sci-fi and fantasy that's outside of the superhero genre into X-Men. But the Shadow King is a case where I think a lot of writers just do not know what to do with him besides do we're in Africa again and he's doing weird shit to Storm again and pretending to be a god. Like Ta-Nehisi Coast did something similar with the adversary. These cosmic entities, sometimes people just don't know what to do with them. Right. I mean, I also think that nobody since Morrison has done a good thing with the Phoenix at all. Yeah, they become almost kind of like a... Right, like you, you like one of those Star Trek stories where you land on a planet and there's a godlike entity that like makes you jump through a bunch. Yes, of who mourns for Adonais? It's like very that, and I like that episode, but you can't. Every episode can't be that episode. You know what I mean? Right, exactly. And and I think the character became so expansive because he became such a metaphor for kind of like uh the as as we were saying like the opposite of the of Xavier. Or, uh, you know, as as uh, Mel Brooks would say, the dark side of the Schwartz. Right. Uh, that is just like the, you know, the inverse, the, sh- the literal shadow of uh, the good guy. Um, and yeah, and that can be a tough story to sell because Xavier and the X-Men in general have so many interesting, you know, philosophical foils that, you know, the literal opposite, like, you know, hate versus hope. That's the thing is the spirituality of the Phoenix Shadow King duality is to me fascinating but it is not the heart of the x-men unless you are chris claremont and so i think other writers just don't go to that well very often right and then also he's a caricature of a fat person who is arguably also a racial caricature which is like right you know that's messy that's tough to sell exactly yeah, br- bringing him down to earth makes him hopefully, you know, more likely to be used in the future. Yeah, I think Farouk is now a really viable character to do all kinds of stuff with. And again, if you want to bring back the Shadow King entity, you can give him a new host. You could have Farouk fight the new host or help them or have insight into what it's like to be merged with the Shadow. Like, you can do stuff now, now that Ayala has made him a person. It's opened the story up a great deal, yeah. Gary Jaffe writes, hi, Connor and Khaldun. Obligatory love the pod. Queer nude community gathering space appreciation intro. Okay, so Shadow King has claimed arch nemesis status for a diverse slate of characters over the course of his publication history. Aurora, Betsy, Xavier, now the younger generation in a whole fascinating way, Vita be praised. What makes him such a good foil? Bigger picture, what makes for a perfect arch nemesis matchup for our merry mutants? Obviously, similar power sets attract, like Shadow King versus Xavier or Shadow King versus Betsy, Wolverine versus half of his rogues gallery but sometimes the strange lineups are really satisfying like Conan versus sinister also please help me sort my feelings out about psy war <laughs> on the one hand i loved it when i was young and there are some great moments in it like and incidentally you look ravishing and tuned in darkness love on the other hand wasn't it kind of joe kelly just backhanding a character he didn't like out of being usable with the shadow king prison and shadow king's characterization it is not great i don't know but maybe you do thanks so much gary in brooklyn no accent except gay we touched on this earlier actually like yes the meme about cyware is joe kelly hated psylocke and wrote her out is that true to some extent probably yes is it also i think a really good betsy story yes so i think you should like it especially because there are no consequences to it now it's over the only consequence is that she got telekinesis which i hate but which most psylocke fans seem to like so you know right yeah 
butterflies and knives you know what the what what's, she what, had you those know. already with the telepathy that's what was that's cool. what i'm saying it's all still yeah, there no, I, so, know, you know. I know i know i know it's fine here's the thing it's been 22 years and i need to get over it but to me in my heart of hearts betsy braddock does not have telekinesis i mean i guess i like the captain britain's sword and shield thing she's doing now and i guess those have to be telekinetic because they need to have physical heft to them but the thing about betsy if you go back to the 80s is that she's a psychoblaster capable of creating tangible force with telepathy which is fucking cool xavier used to do that in the 70s too so just putting that out there i don't know it's fine yeah i mean i i one thing i like about mutants is like i i'm always down for the like I have one thing that I do incredibly well. Mutant. That's the thing. I prefer when a character is like, I love that Emma's not telekinetic. If they gave Emma telekinesis, I would be annoyed because she's cool enough without it. You don't have to give them every power. Right. But it's, yeah. I mean, my preference is I'm really good at one thing, but I don't mind a character who has like a grab bag of things as long as, you know, it doesn't out another character. I don't mind Jean Grey being Jean Grey. I just think she's Jean Grey. Like right. similarly, I don't mind Storm being Storm, but I don't want Iceman to get lightning bolts. Don't give him any ideas. There's no need for it, you know? <laughs> anyway. Jason Jones writes, greetings, Connor, an esteemed guest. First, the personal note, I've spent a little over a year catching up on the Cerebro backlog, and I've loved getting to hear Connor and his guests discuss the X-Men in such rich detail, particularly as they open up all the subtext that completely flew over my head when I first read all the comics a bit over a decade ago. As a straight white cis man, I missed so, so much of what made these comics special, and Cerebro, along with the larger queer X fandom, has helped me see how rich a text they really are. I'm eternally grateful for the breadth of perspective Cerebro has made easily accessible to flat scans like me. That means a lot, Jason, so thank you for sharing that. I was thrilled to see that the Shadow King is on the upcoming episode slate since his relatively radical reimagining in Vita Ayala's recent New Mutants run. I'm fascinated by the retcon Ayala put in place, which makes Farouk and the Shadow King separate psychic entities, as well as their decision to devote an eight-part story to exploring the tangled mess of harms and traumas Farouk caused while being a victim himself. It struck me as a much more deeply nuanced story than typically gets tackled in the archetypal superhero mode that comics often default to. Regarding Farouk specifically, how do you feel about this soft reboot on a Claremont villain who never quite got his due as a big bad? Given the Shadow King's history as a pseudo-Union evil of the collective unconscious, what are the interesting angles on future stories for this character? How likely do you think it is that other writers will take Farouk to the more gray territory of seeking to atone while grappling with his personal damage over reverting him back to being bad because he just enjoys being bad? Thanks, Jason Jones, JK Jones 21 on the Discord. We just talked about all of this, but you're we agree with you, is what I'm <laughs> Like, yeah, I don't have a further answer to that. Claremont did establish that they were separate beings, but Ayala has made it so concrete and so indelible. I think that that story, those eight issues, are something that people are going to be recommending for, like, the next 40 years. Like, I think that that's a run that is really going to stand the test of time. I don't know whether people will want to use him. I think it's very possible also that that's the last Amal Farouk story. Yeah. But I hope not. Yeah, Ho hopefully not, but I, but I agree. Like, you know, it it, um, it opens him up, but it also makes him more complex. And But it's also an ending if you want it to be an ending. And since in most stories he's just the boogeyman, they might just leave him well enough alone. Even if the Shadow King comes back with a new host, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I think I think that's fair. It, it's possible that you know we don't we don't see him again, but because it would be a good ending for his character on on some sense. I do think the visual of the big fat guy with the cool purple fez is just like so striking, though, in the white suit. Like, yeah, I'd be shocked if he was forever gone. I just hope that future writers respect the division between 
the entity and the man Farouk that Ayala has established. Yeah. Because I think it would be very easy to not have read those issues and fuck it up. <laughs> so right. I hope everybody so reads grand, it. <laughs> yeah, in the grand scheme of all the X-Men stories, right, it's, it's not a lot of pages, but uh, they're very powerful. Right, but I mean, like ten years from now, someone might not have read that story right. and and walk it back, and I hope that that exactly. doesn't happen. Yeah. Benjamin Hins writes, "Hi Connor and Khaldun. Hoping I'm not too late for questions regarding Shadow King. After recently finishing history with the New Mutants in the Krakoa era, it seems Mister Farouk is perhaps the best example of Krakoa and the Quiet Council's policy of radical forgiveness. Of course, they've pardoned many a supervillain, but they've usually been well behaved on the island. Shadow King got a third chance after some shady shit on Krakoa." I guess the question is, how do you feel about his case in particular and the overarching policy of radical forgiveness? Unless you do graffiti or whatever it is Chuck's been throwing kids in the hole for <laughs> on Krakoa. Seems like the generosity extends further toward more powerful mutants. Thanks for getting this 90s boy back into X-Men for their greatest era, Benjamin Hintz. I am a fan of Krakoa and Amnesty. I think that the most interesting stories about Krakoa and Amnesty are the stories like this one or like Fenris in X-Corp or like Selene in Immortal X-Men of like these people suck, but could they be better? And the answer in the case of Farouk is yes. The answer in the case of Fenris is no. The answer in the case of Selene is maybe. And I think that those are all cool, interesting answers. And I hope that all three of those stories are not done. Right. No, I think the amnesty concept is really interesting. Um, and they run and the quiet council runs up against the same problems that, you know, that philosophy runs up with immediately is, you know, what do you do with the, you know, irredeemable. What do you do with Sabretooth? Yeah, like Sabretooth or and, you know, what happens as well, you know, the people who on some level kind of um, threaten the integrity or, uh, you know, well, well running of your society. Right. They get, get put, in, put in the hole is what happens to them. So, you know, there are obviously limits to that amnesty. At the same time, Sabretooth and then Sabretooth in the Exile show us, okay, but the hole's not a good solution. So we have to no. figure this out. A lot of how you feel about this will relate to how you feel about justice and prison and restorative yeah. processes and stuff. Like, I am a pretty anti-carceral person, so... Yeah, as someone who has uh, both worked in a prison and spent some time in a cell, I can say that they suck. <laughs> <laughs> You know, inside and out, like working in one sucks, being in one sucks, like uh, as much reform as possible. And the less jails that less people in jails, the better your society is going to be. Yeah, I mean, I don't believe in prison for nonviolent crimes. I'll just like put that out there. I, I just don't think it's productive. And I think that there's good arguments to be made for full abolition. I'm just, uh, you know, again, it's not my it's not my wheelhouse. And I think that the question with prison abolition that's always posed is like, well, but what about Sabretooth, essentially? Right. What about the Sabretooth? Exactly, yeah. And I think that that's a good question. And, you know, I'm opposed to prison for nonviolent crimes. Farouk is not a nonviolent criminal, but how culpable is he? You know, that kind of stuff. Or what the mutant question opens up is, I mean, Celine is the one I always point to because she is so evil historically. She has done horrific things. But she also has been forced to kill other people to live since she was a literal infant. How responsible is she for her lack of empathy for other people? 
Is there something we can do? Is she a sociopath or is she someone who's damaged? Is she someone who could be a productive member of society? I would argue the thing that got her in trouble in Immortal X-Men number one was that she was being a productive member of society. She just did it in a very melodramatic <laughs> way. It's all interesting to me and it's the kind of stuff that I think Krakoa has opened up that is so valuable. And I just hope we dig deeper and deeper and deeper into it. I loved this story. I would love to see more with this character. I would love to see more examples of former villains grappling. I mean, Grey Crow in Hellions is another one where it's just brilliant. And he is a former genocidaire who killed children for money. Grey Crow, who is now a very popular character, is one of the most loathsome villains you can yeah. think of in terms of classic Claremont X-Men. He machine guns children to death on page for cash. Yeah. And laughs at their mother who tried to protect them. The question of who's too bad to save is always a good question. But like, this is the Madeline Pryor Defense Podcast. So obviously I'm going to be more inclined toward forgiveness, not absolution. And I think that that's the difference that karma stresses here. She doesn't forgive him and she doesn't absolve him, but she hopes that he can be a better man. Right. Yeah. And as someone, you know, who, you know, uh, really appreciated uh, what was on in the page uh, on Inferno, definitely like, a, I don't know if I got the subtext, but I certainly enjoyed all the art in Inferno. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I'm also um, a pro, pro, pro Goblin Queen. <laughs> she did nothing wrong. Yeah. Nothing. Not a thing. I mean. Fuck them kids. Havoc also, I, you know, has never been accused of being the sharpest tool in this shed. Definitely not the smartest of the Summers brothers. Not a high bar, but still. <laughs> Watch what you say about my son, Alexander Summers, on this podcast. Oh, no, I'm, I, I love I'm Havoc. I'm kidding. Don't, I'm just kidding. Don't get me wrong. It is about to be, I am pretty sure, a rough few months for Havoc in the dark web. Yeah, I just, I just, I, I appreciate his strengths and I try to recognize his weaknesses, but yeah. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. Max writes, hello, Connor and esteemed guest. Love the pod, Connor. And as with everyone else who writes in, my love of comics has been restored by this show. I've filled two short boxes since I started listening to your show early in the pandemic. I kind of went nuts on collecting the Hellfire Gala covers. Those costumes are incredible. Anyway, I'm one of the few, the proud, the Legion stands. By extension, I got really into all the Shadow King stories. I really loved his recent redemption arc in New Mutants. Clearly, this isn't the end of his journey, though, and he's going to have to go through a lot of therapy. Where does one go to get therapy on Krakoa? The altar, of course. How do you think Legion's going to react when people try to bring Amal back into his head? As you know, he lives there rent-free through about half of David's life, and I imagine David won't want his abuser mucking about in there anymore. Thanks again for the fantastic entertainment, and please keep up the good work, and make mine Cerebro. So it says at the end of the New Mutants arc that he has requested to work with David as part of making his amends once he has gone through intensive therapy off Krakoa. He agrees to leave Krakoa, get his mind right, and then when he comes back, if he's allowed back in, would like to work in the altar with David and help people. I assume that that was run by David before the paperwork was filed. So... You know, I think that Legion as a character is more capable of forgiveness than a lot of other people because he is a lot of other people. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that, No, I get you. He You're, has done terrible true. things. He has been terrible people. Notably, his origin story involves him forgiving the Palestinian terrorist who murdered his father. Yeah. His stepfather who raised him, who he thought was his father 
biologically. And not only forgiving Jamail, but becoming one with him. That's sort of what Legion does and why I thought that Legion's circuit with Dust in the Onslaught Revelation was so key because she unites objects physically and he unites people mentally and together, as a Jew and a Muslim, notably, they were able to create this altar space where people can come and be healed. Farouk is another character he could do that with and it would be very meaningful for them because of their history together. So it'd be interesting. Right. I mean, I could really see them getting along um, on some level simply because, as we were saying, Farouk is kind of like the shadow Xavier and Mm -hmm. who could appreciate an opposite Xavier more than David. Right. And I think that David understands what it's like to be not in control of yourself, in part because of the Shadow King at times, but also because of the way his power creates these alternate personalities Jack Wayne took over his body and was doing evil shit with it before the Shadow King got in there. So I think he would be sympathetic to this. Right. I would love to see them chat. And I think Cy Spurrier would write the absolute shit out of that. Yeah. And Farouk, as we've seen from, you know, the Ayala run, Farouk definitely has better, um, I don't know what, paternal instincts than uh, Xavier ever did. Certainly. So, <laughs> so you know, maybe it's an yeah. unexpected yeah, exactly. Buddies. Relationship. Yeah, yeah. Christopher Kano writes, Hello, Connor and esteemed guest, Mr. Calden Khalil. Aside from his role in Charles Soule's Astonishing X-Men, my only real exposure to Amal Farouk has been Naveed Negabon's stunning performance on FX's Legion. What are your thoughts regarding this adaptation? More specifically, why the fuck did they make the Shadow King so goddamn hot? Yeah. Thoughts of this truly despicable predatory monster being such a daddy? Thank you for the wonderful work you both do. Chris. I didn't watch Legion, but I agree that Naveed is extremely hot. (laughs) He is a very good looking guy. I mean, not everybody can pull off those glasses, um, but he certainly, uh, he he doesn't get, he doesn't have the fez on in the show really, but um, he definitely pulls the glasses and the suit off very well. Yeah. He's just, he's a, he's a good looking fella. Yeah, not not to spoil the show, but I mean, I was to say Aubrey Plaza is also pretty fucking hot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, right, exactly. Not to spoil the show, but yeah, everyone. It's been canceled for years. Get over it, people. No, no, it, they've, it finished its run. It's complete. It's a complete. It ended. Story. I'm sorry. Let yeah, me rephrase. Yeah. But yeah, okay, fair enough. Okay, you know, spoiler alert: everyone who plays the Shadow King in that show, from Aubrey Plaza to Naveed, is you know very hot. And I don't even know if you could call him a villain in that show either. Like, they they take the character in very interesting places. That's what I've heard. Quite honestly, I've heard it's great, and someday I will do it. But just like with The Gifted, I was so brain-poisoned by the Fox X-Men franchise that anything, like, even remotely adjacent to it, any X-Men product with a Fox logo at the beginning, I was just like, I'm not going to watch this. Last question. Rich Hilborn writes, Hi, Connor and Khaldun. Long-time listener, first-time questioner from Ontario, Canada. Feel free to do your Canadian accent, Connor. Wow. That's good. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) I mean, I, I did date a Toronto lad famously. My question is, in previous episodes, you said that you consider the Phoenix to be Jean Grey, even though it's later been written that it existed before Jean did. Is this the same as Shadow King, where the powers of the mutant character got to such a high level of power that it became an entity that had always existed? And could other mutants create entities? Like, could Storm have a huge influx of her power that there's a cosmic hurricane that's been raging through the universe for eons? Love the podcast, been sharing it with all my friends, even some of my friends who haven't read X-Men yet to get them interested. All the best, Rich Hellborn, Rich and Crispy on the Discord. 
I think that any of these things could happen if a writer wants them to. I don't see the Shadow King as the same here. So what he's referencing, if you go back to the Abigail Brand episode I did with Al Ewing, I kind of lay out this theory of mine that is how Jean Grey and the Phoenix are connected now and forever, in my opinion, which is that I believe Jean Grey of Earth 616 will eventually evolve into the phoenix and then retroactively have always existed because the phoenix exists in all places and times simultaneously i think that that is why gene's catchphrase as it were is i'm the only me that ever was because that's Asha which is the hebrew i am what i am i have been what i have been it's what god says to moses so that's my read on that character and i think it fixes all of the shitty retcons about gene and the phoenix <laughs> And it also explains why Earth-616 is important to the Omniverse, if it's where the Phoenix, the life force of the universe, came from. I mean, I guess Moira also now, although Jordan Bloom's new story suggests that alternate Moiras might also have Moira's power, some of them anyway. Maybe just the Age of Apocalypse one, because that was a timeline split from 616. Who knows? Point is, I do not think that Farouk is like that. After the Ayala story, like it, this is something that could have been in Claremont's version, for sure. But I think that the Ayala story only works if they're separate things that became one thing, right. not one thing that became separate things. Exactly. Yeah, they find each other, which makes the, it makes the story work that they find each other. Whether the Shadow King had, you know, uh, assumedly he had other hosts. Yeah, I think that what's different here is that the triumphant story for Farouk is realizing he's not the shadow King and the triumphant story for Jean will be realizing that she is the Phoenix. Jean's story is about realizing that these two separate things are one thing. And Farouk's story is about realizing that this one thing is actually two separate things in that way. They're opposites in that dyadic way that Claremont sort of sets up the Phoenix and the shadow King in the first place. Right. I also think it makes more sense cosmologically if the light comes from the future and the darkness comes from the past. Like if the Phoenix is a light shooting back toward the Shadow King, I think that that works really well. But none of that is canon. That's just like my, I will say, I said no one's ever done anything good with the Phoenix. I meant like Phoenix-driven plots, to be clear. I think Al Ewing and Kieran Gillen and everybody else writing stuff that references Gene's relationship with the Phoenix and the Phoenix generally right now is doing a great job. Al Ewing knows what he's doing, as Kieran puts it. So, uh, you know, I didn't mean them. <laughs> sincere look of contrition well i just meant like <laughs> avengers versus x-men fucking sucks it does the people who wrote it know it sucks phoenix wise it just doesn't work most of those stories with the phoenix don't work and similarly most of the stories with the shadow king don't work because claremont was doing something really specific with both of them right you just keep bringing them back because they're classic that's comics about comics you need to have a new thing to right. do with them you need to have a new story you need to have a reason for this character to be in the story this force to be in the story this theme to be in the story right yeah, and thematically that works you know a shadow from the past in the sense um because you know what the shadow represents is like our fear of the worst and right. kind of you know not believing in hope planning for the worst uh you know on, on a positive level it's planning from the worst but when hope is a key word also, because the implication to me has always been that hope, the character, was created by the Phoenix Force. Like, it's sort of a Christ figure created right. from it, in the same way that Rachel, this is the thing about ongoing stories, is it Night happens a couple of times, right? Yeah. yeah, there's like several Christ, Cable's one too. <laughs> right. <it's> <laughs> but either way, 
that family line that creates hope comes out of the phoenix. And so the idea that the phoenix sends hope back to us, it's sort of a reverse Pandora kind of thing. And the Shadow King as like that original sin is also interesting to me. So anyway, basically, uh, I don't know, give me 10 years and maybe I'll put some of this in a comic book. Those are my thoughts. None of them are canon, but we've interpreted the Shadow King as best we could here. And I hope that you enjoyed this episode, which was a little wacky, but I've had fun chit-chatting with Khaldun and, and doing a little story time in the back half. Khaldun, do you have anything else you want to say before we wrap up? Uh, no, that was great. That was a lot of fun. Um, I'm glad we got a chance to chat. I am too. And thank you for your patience as I just was so freaking busy this month that I had to cancel on you like four times and then I had laryngitis oh, no, no, and no, then no. it was just like a not a problem. Nightmare. I mean, it's, uh, it's been, uh, it's been a crazy, what, three years now. So, yeah. you know, uh, <laughs> I think we all get a, we all get a pass on the past three years, no yeah. matter what. I'm Gosh. not giving shit for anything anymore. <laughs> Why don't you tell the listeners how to follow you online and plug anything that you want to plug? Oh, well, I'm mostly on Twitter. You can find me on Twitter at, at K Khalil. That's K K H E L I L. I write role-playing games, you know, Vampire the Masquerade, um, Call of Cthulhu, that kind of thing. Uh, and you can find my books, uh, Amazon and the such, and also uh, Drive Through RPG. So if you like role-playing games, I, I do that. Did you work on Cults of the Blood Gods? Uh, I did not work on I Cults. have a complaint. We can talk about oh, okay. this. I just, okay. I don't I can't think, help you with the complaint. But... I don't think that the prerequisite disciplines for some of the Hakata ceremonies make any sense. I've heard that complaint before. Why do I need where the shroud thins to compel a spirit if I have the fetter? That doesn't make any sense. Well, I mean, I... Um... We'll talk about this offline. Connect me with your supervisor. I'm writing my own version of La Sombra, so, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, I'm trying to build a Giovanni and it's fucking complicated now. Well, there's a Vampire Player's Guide coming out that's going to make all of that a lot easier for V5 that I wrote on. Um, and uh, that well, too late. I already it. did it, but I'll, you uh, know. Oh, well, I'll, sorry. It's fine. No, no, it's no, fine. It just took me a minute. <laughs> anyway, this is not a Vampire the Masquerade podcast. That's your next podcast. God, no. I, 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 mm. <laughs> it, could be, it could be fun, but no, I, yeah. I don't think so. Listen, I'm already dealing with comics fan base. You think I want to invite the TTRPG oh, yeah, no, yeah. into my life? I don't really want to do that. No comment. No comment. Yeah, no. <laughs> That's Ajita I do not need. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for being my guest. This was great, and I really enjoyed getting a chance to chat with you. Thank you for sharing your perspective as someone who has personal attachments to the region that this character represents in ways that are like good and not good. And fraught, let's say, is perhaps the word. I am hopeful that he will be a positive figure moving forward, whether or not he's a hero that he will be a full person. Right. And I think that that's all we can really ask any character to be. Exactly. I don't believe in representation politics as like a be-all, end-all, but I do think that what's important about representation is all kinds of people getting to exist as full people in a narrative. Exactly right. Right. Not just cutouts. No, exactly. Exactly. You can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at CerebroCast. You can follow me on Twitter at DreamOfOrganon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can find all of the episodes plus links to the Discord server, the merch store, and much, much more at CerebroCast.com, the official landing page for the podcast for $5 a month at the House of Zaladin tier at Patreon.com slash CerebroCast. 
you can get an ad-free version of every episode as soon as they go up, plus exclusive access to the secret files, bonus episodes, including the weekly Claremont Marathon, which is back on now that my laryngitis is gone, and the upcoming series Worrying About It, where we untangle some of the weirder plots. The first episode will be about the Black Womb Project. I also have some bonus content that's regular secret file bonus content coming down the pipe in the next few months. Thank you for your support. The Patreon is my primary source of income these days. So please, if you do love the work I do, I would really appreciate you throwing in because it, it helps me a great deal. It's a tough time in publishing. I'll tell you that for free. Next week's episode will feature Nola Fow, three-time Eisner Award-winning editor of Women Writing About Comics, who will be talking about Longshot, then Jason Lowe on Jubilee, then writer Josh Trujillo, currently on Blue Beetle Graduation Day, which has been rapturously received, will be joining me to talk about Forge. Questions are closed because I already have like 20 for each of them. And I'm just, I got to cut you all off now at this point. Sorry about that. If you didn't get in under the wire, but questions are still open for Stephen Adwell on Sebastian Shaw, Holly Raymond on Jamie Braddock and Chuck Austin on nurse Annie Gazakanian. Stay tuned for more on what's to come. Thank you as always for your support. And until next time, everybody. Bye. Bye everybody. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. The only hope is... X-Men.